Off the Ball Daily. A home for your favourite podcasts from Off the Ball. Everyone wants to see what Djokovic is doing at home and, you know, everyone wants a little insight into what's making him the best tennis player in the world. Subscribe to the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed right now. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. Very good morning, welcome along to Thursday morning's OTB and the Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. We're here with you live until 10 o'clock this morning. Loads coming up between now and 10 o'clock. We've got Maeve de Burka looking ahead to the Republic of Ireland versus France in the women's game tonight at Tala Stadium, 7.45pm kickoff. Of course, as the team head off to Australia tomorrow. Uh, plenty of interesting stuff out of the press conference as well yesterday that we will get into uh, with Vera Pau. Uh, Barry Hennessy, not with Vera Pau. Of course, they were chatting to Vera Pau at the press conference. Katie McCabe was there as well. Uh, but we'll discuss that with uh, Miff de Burka a little bit later on the show. Barry Hennessy, Antonio O'Gregan will preview Galway versus Limerick in the All-Ireland Senior Hurling Championship semi-final this weekend. We'll, of course, uh, look ahead further to the Clare Kilkenny game on tomorrow morning's show. Uh, Jess Kelly is back from Wimbledon. She's been... Uh, using some AI over there for some uh, robotic commentary uh, so we'll hear how all that was for her and Paul Howard's version an episode of You Had To Be There all to come at around about 9 o'clock this morning uh, really looking forward to that one some really interesting picks from Paul it has to be said and Tim Vickery some highlights from last night's show at half past 9 we'll have live commentary by the way of the Ireland-France game tonight with Nathan Murphy alongside Pearl Slattery but uh, we will first say good morning to Kathleen McNamee and to Colin Buhig good morning to you both morning, good morning, morning. Shane Kathleen how are we keeping very well, oh, good. very well. Okay. Excited about Paul Howard's. You had to be there. Oh, the very picks. excited about that. We can't ruin the picks yet, can we? No, no, I wouldn't think so. But it, they are very good. They're excellent. I will say this: yeah. the most prepared man in the world. He, he gave me those picks like over a month ago. Now at this stage, and did he give them to you in the order that was correct, or did you reassemble nope. them? No, he gave it to me exactly. And he actually didn't even need that much of an explanation. Like normally, you need to like talk people through the exact details yeah, that you want, yeah, and he I mean? was just like, "Here you go." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The one thing I will say about it is, and it's a minor spoiler, there is a snooker pick. There is a snooker pick. What a snooker pick. And what a snooker pick. So I was obviously buzzing for this one. I was like, yeah. And I think the second most entered you had to be there concludes... Pause list. You think it's the second? I, I think I, so. I think it's I was, the first, maybe. Oh, do you? I think uh, mm, the I other think Katie one. Taylor has yeah. been mentioned. Well, that, yeah, that's not a spoiler because Katie Taylor isn't included. But I think that's the most entered. But this might be the second most. Uh, please bring up the do- the article about Paul Howard's dog. Yeah, it's incredible. Because I, I haven't seen this. What's this about? This is about Paul he Howard's wrote, beagle. He, uh, in 2018, Paul wrote about his beagle. I hope Paul's listening now. Yeah. And um, I was thinking, like, I'm not going to read an article about someone writing about their dog. Yeah. But then I read it and I was like, absolutely in after paragraph one. But paragraph two, I was howling. It's such, it's just Laughing brilliant. howling. Yeah, it's yeah. like the, this, the most stubborn dog in the world and gave examples of how he couldn't train him properly. Then months later, was in Dunleary, saw the same breed of dog and was like, oh, that reminds me of that article. And then followed the dog up the lead to the owner, who was Paul Howard. That's I've never been starstruck by a dog before. Yeah, actually, yeah, funny. I've, I still have never been starstruck by a dog. It, it could happen to you. Well, I mean, I don't think it would either. But. Also, just to correct the record, is actually a basset hound. That's, is that what it is? Yeah. yeah I look it, it says there. it in the first line of the article. Is it? Uh, that was 2018, like five years ago. Um, yeah, I can see it here next to me. Uh, people should read, honestly read it. I don't have a dog. I found it great. What was Paul's entry into the Culture Club? Remember we had the Culture Club during the during COVID, was it? Oh, yeah, that's right. Was it yeah. Columbo, was it? Yeah, that, that rings a vague Someone bell. random did yeah, Columbo yeah. and he said he Could have been him. I think it was Paul. No, I'm, I stand to be correct to Paul if I'm wrong, apologies, but certainly someone random yeah, that was in good, my head was a, good series. was a very big fan of uh, Columbo. 
I always like when we're talking to someone on the show and we're like apologizing to them or addressing them as if they're listening. And I just find it funny the idea of they're not listening at all and we're just talking into a void. Yes, it's true. As if someone is being insulted and we don't even know. I am correct, by the way. Paul Howard added Colombo to the OTB Culture Hall of Fame in 2020. Could that be your epitaph? I am correct, by the way. Just one more thing, because <laughs> Colombo might say himself in a trench coat. Yeah, because he said he visited Colombo's grave, or Peter Falk's grave. Colombo, of course, being a, a fictional character. Uh, but Peter Falk, you sure about that? <laughs> yeah, I'm actually not sure. Another guy whose autograph I have, Peter Falk, the actor who played Colombo. Oh, yeah, <laughs> You're going to say Colombo. <laughs> yeah. Before we get on to the actual sport, how many autographs do you have? Uh, thousands. Really? Yeah. Yeah, uh, the, the gaff at home, if there's, ever a, if there's ever a fire or something, touch wood, I'll be... I should really put them away. So yeah, bring them in. I'll bring, them, I'll bring yeah. a few of them and show and tell. Scatter them there around the studio. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I haven't got your autographs yet, guys. Both. Mine's inconsistent. Public figures. Is it? It's literally different every time. See, I like someone who has a consistent signature. Not saying I don't like you, but um, yeah, oh, work on that, please. Your ones that are on the whiteboard good, outside are pretty consistent, apart from whenever you do it with different hands. Yeah, that's what I was trying to show off that I couldn't uh, or could write with both hands. Do you know when I was in school, my teachers always used to think I was faking notes because my dad's signature is so bad. It's literally just like a circle and another like loop. I love it. And like I also are. I'm not going to say it on air, but our doctor had a slightly unfortunate name, and they also thought that I was making that up whenever I had oh, doctor's really? notes. And I was like, "No, that's literally his name, oh, and that is I'm actually my dad." Mad to know the name now, but obviously you can't reveal on air. Um, yeah, I used to my my mum's signature was quite easy to to copy, but I used to tell her I was copying it. So like instead of just taking the jar, I said, "Mum, can I just can I just do this?" She was like, "Yeah, go on." Sorry, mum, but I shouldn't be really angry <laughs> like this. But it was with her full permission. You know, I wasn't just. Send in your best signatures there. Yeah, send in your signatures. Uh, I used to practice signatures when I was a kid, but yeah, I have loads of sporting signatures. I think, yeah, Franz Beckenbauer yeah, it's such a said, classic Shane line. I used to practice signatures when I was <laughs> yeah. a kid. I used to send it away from me and I was like, what if I have to ever write a signature? And uh, yeah, I used to practice. What did you decide on as your favourite sort of signature? Favourite sort of signature? Mm. Like, in, do you like a big, loopy, doctor-style sort of one? Or are you more, like, oh, intricate with it? to describe it. Like, aesthetically pleasing. Like, like Donald Trump has a signature that looks bonkers as you can mm. uh, like sometimes signature, signatures put suit personalities it's like a what do you call the graph that your heart rate monitor it's just a squiggle heart graph like it's, be, it's <laughs> I couldn't think of that one on the spot it's it's essentially <laughs> just a squiggle uh, so sometimes people's signatures are just hilarious sometimes Michael Keynes is like I have that at home and it's like M line it's all a scam line. Nobody, everyone, you, you just start off with the first letter of your first name which is fine and then you just go mad after that like, it doesn't actually matter and also the madder you go the more it seems to be respected Like it's a whole scam signatures <laughs> it's all a bit mad uh, there'll be a few signatures dished out uh, at Tallis Stadium oh, lovely, after yeah, the match exactly, because yeah. of course they're heading off to Australia tomorrow for the uh, Women's World Cup really excited um, I know the French game is probably going to be slightly tougher than the Zambia match to say the least I would the fifth so. in the world. So, I mean, like, I understand the... I guess the thinking behind this, Kathleen, is play really, really tough teams, and that's been Vera Poe's uh, plan all along, I guess. Yeah, like she has said all along that she wants to play the toughest opponents because otherwise the team won't be properly prepared. And she said, like, quite a few times that that's why Ireland have struggled in the past, is that they haven't actually put themselves up against the best opposition. She's also very particular in, like, the teams that she picks, say, like, in the last couple of months in the build-up to the World Cup every team has had a particular reason why she's played them so like China Zambia Germany France they all like fill different criteria that suit the teams in our World Cup group even if it's just certain elements of it so yeah tonight's gonna be interesting I'm 
interested to see what Team Viewer puts out. I asked her yesterday in the press conference. Everyone's fit, so everyone's willing to play. And I was like, how close is it going to be to the starting 11? And she was like, well, we're treating this match as a competitive game. We're going out to win. We're not. It's a very different situation to say like Zambia, where she was trying to get an idea of who was playing well and who was going to be in the actual squad. But she also said that that doesn't necessarily mean that the team will stay that way as well. So she was saying that because of the way they're doing like periodization to make sure that all the players get to the same spot at the same time because um, everyone's coming championship players finished like a couple of months ago players like Katie McCabe when he came in a couple of weeks ago Denise O'Sullivan this is like her first week in camp um, so she was saying that uh, there are some players that might only play like 30 minutes there are other players who might play the full 90 it's while it is a competitive game it's still a build up to the World Cup so we're not going to see like absolutely everything that we can expect from that first game in Sydney it's um regardless of it being a friendly and I, I was thinking because like, they're flying out tomorrow can you imagine the trepidation of these players heading into a 50-50 challenge tonight it's like and of course if, if you pull out you tend to get injured so yeah. you really have to go it's for it but, yeah exactly but you could any old kind of stupid injury where you could just you haven't warmed up to 100% efficiency and you yeah. could do a hamstring and I, it must be on tentacles and at the same time you're playing against the fifth best team in the world according to the FIFA rankings That's who your have, place who have played for your place who have played in five World Cups themselves France versus Ireland zero like it's a huge disparity in like, like just 17 places between these sides in the rankings again if, if rankings are important to you and only five of this Irish squad have actually played against France before right. so it's it's new for the majority and on paper this is actually Ireland's toughest task in the next month mm. you know but of course being a friendly you're hope, like France are going to be in the same boat as Ireland everyone is they don't want to get injured especially yeah. the star players so you're hoping for a bit of rotation and I guess the only thing you're hoping for tonight is well, two things obviously is, is a good performance in promising football but also not to get hammered you don't want to leave mm. you don't want to leave the country with you know, a drubbing but I don't think that's going to happen No surely not I'm just checking here to see so France are fifth in the world rankings and our, the rest of our group Canada seventh Australia tenth and then ourselves, of course, in 22nd. Nigeria, like 40-something, right? Okay, they're 40th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Yes, Canada are the highest rank. Like, are, Fr- are France... It's probably a stupid question to ask, because of course they are, but are France legitimate World Cup contenders here, Kathleen? Uh, I think, like, yes. I think, like, France technically should have been World Cup contenders or even Euro contenders for the last couple of years, but they've had such a complicated situation with their former manager, Corinne Diacre, who, like... Like the 2019 World Cup, it was held in France. It was supposed to be like a watershed moment for that French team. But she isolated so many of the top players, like Eugénie Le Sommer. Like she's the top French scorer, despite what people will try and tell you about the men's side. Uh, she hasn't played for the last couple of years because she fell out with Diacre. You had like Amadine Henry, Henri, who was like the captain. She also fell out with Diacre. They've had, so like Wendy Renard before the whole tournament started said that she wasn't going to play the World Cup under Diacra and then within a week Diacra was gone and Renard was back in the squad. So this is like the first year in a long time that we're actually going to properly see what this French team are capable of. They still have some quite big injuries, but also they've known about those for a couple of months. They're like ACLs that were done last summer towards the end of autumn so you know they've had time to prepare for it mm. and they have some really really talented young players coming up too so I think they're probably an unknown quality to a certain extent but definitely one of the teams that I would see doing quite well in the tournament if they're able to get their act together 
wouldn't be the French without a little bit of carnage in the build-up in the year before World Cup. So for people oh, unfamiliar, like the Acre who you mentioned was sacked following a player of revolt. So Wendy Renard, Marie Antoinette Cototo, Kadia Tu, Diani, among those who threatened to walk away unless Diacre was sacked. Uh, I think it was over his approach to dealing with players, and he was sacked. Hervé Renard comes in in March. I mean, in March, like just months before a World Cup, which isn't exactly ideal to have a manager coming in that late. Hervé Renard is, of course, that uh, dapper-looking gentleman who managed Saudi Arabia in their famous win over over Argentina at the, the Men's World Cup. He's such Christmas. an interesting appointment because like, he doesn't have any experience in the women's game. And I know people say like football is football, but there are different things that you kind of need for either side and like people can manage both that's absolutely no problem at all but he I from what I know he has limited to no experience managing a women's team but the way he came in he was actually really impressive with some of the stuff like he automatically introduced a policy where any of the players in the team who were mothers could bring like their babies into camp and he was like why wouldn't I do that I mean if they're distracted, they're not going to play well on the pitch, so we should be doing everything we can to support them. And it was like... Yeah. It's just, he's such an intriguing figure. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one. Just the fact that he's only had months as well, what, four months now to deal with that? Mm. Um, I can't really talk about France going into the World Cup with Carnage after Saipan 2002, I guess. And also, uh, we should turn to this story because the press conference yesterday wasn't exactly dominated by matters football. It was matters off the pitch. Back to the Irish Independent, McCabe, Powell's new deal is not up to me. Uh, Ireland captain Katie McCabe has said it's not up to her to decide whether Vera Powell gets a contract extension beyond this month's World Cup. The manager saying last month that both she and the FEI were engaged in talks and she hoped that the discussions could be concluded before the commencement of the World Cup. And of course there's these fresh allegations emerging this week on a US website about her time at the Houston Dash. The FEI appearing to have stalled on negotiations, so that seems to have been what's uh, dominated the press conference yesterday. Someone is out to get me, says Vera Powell in the back of the Irish Daily Star. Uh, Powell believes person with an agenda is trying to destroy her. Uh, Powell claims the allegations made against her last December and in an article published earlier this week are down to an agenda by one person who is, quote, trying to destroy my career. Uh, she was heavily pressed on this issue yesterday at the contents of an interview uh, conducted with unnamed former Houston Dash players and staff members that appeared in The Athletic on Monday morning. Um, and all the, other, all the rest of the papers are, are dealing with this issue as well. Kathleen, this was uh, an issue that uh, cropped up heavily at the press conference at which you were present yesterday. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been in a press conference that was quite as tense as that. And I have done Mourinho and Guardiola press conferences before, which are just tense on an average day. Um, it was... Yeah, like Vera came out very strong at the start and like she has always vehemently denied any allegations against her and the press conference yesterday pretty much followed the same tune. Um, there was a bit of discussion before as to who the player would be that would be put up to, I suppose, represent what the team were thinking. No surprise that it was Katie McCabe when these allegations first came out before Christmas. It was Katie that was up there as well. Um, it was... Yeah, it was probably like half an hour of the two of them being asked the same question or very, very similar questions over and over again. And the two of them getting continuously more frustrated with it. Like even at the end, Katie was very, very visibly frustrated and frustrated at the fact that there was so little talk about the match tonight or the fact that they're flying off to the first ever World Cup. But it's hard as well in those situations because, yeah, you can ask those questions, but also the story that everyone wants to know about is 
the article that was written this week and I suppose this yesterday was like Vera's first opportunity to actually address the media about it and give her side from straight from her mouth rather than, you know, the quotes and the information that she gave in the article. Um, but yeah, strenuously denied all the allegations. McCabe was asked, did the whole squad support her? And she said yes. And then it was kind of followed up and someone asked her, well, do you speak for the entire squad? And she was like, well, obviously I can't speak for everyone individually. So there was a bit of, I suppose, not clarity there. And when Vera was asked, because it was one of the questions that was raised and off the ball during the week, have you talked to the players or how's the FAI talked to the players? She said that she's talked to the senior leadership and that each one of the senior leaders came to her individually and offered their support. Now, obviously, that's coming from her rather than the actual players. So you have to take it at her word. Um, but yeah, it was... It's, I don't know. I just I feel like we've spent so much of this World Cup build-up talking about things other than the football and yeah. just being able to get excited about it. And it's incredibly frustrating. And I feel like the FAI could have done a much better job at handling this situation. It shouldn't be up to Katie McCabe or any of the other players to stand up and have to speak for the entire squad or answer questions about why the FAI acted one way or the other. That should be on the FAI. They should have had more clarity in their processes in this whole thing and that hasn't been there um, and it's and it's only going to get worse because when we get to the World Cup the Australian media is going to want to ask about it the Canadian media is going to want to ask about it you know yesterday's press conference ended and we all kind of went like okay whew, that's over but the next thing we were all thinking was okay well when we get over to Brisbane Sydney Perth we're just going to have to sit through this again and again 100% and they're definitely would have been a way to approach this where there'd be less questions swirling around and we'd be able to focus on the actual football. For anyone who has been living under a rock, so the, the comments in the... Uh, and Virpai was interviewed for this athletic piece that was released on Monday. Uh, she claims she received a death threat from a member of the Houston Dash staff after she switched training to the evening to avoid the daytime heat. She said in the piece, he threatened to shoot me in the head as I was taking his beer night away, adding she got police protection until that situation was resolved. This all started back in December. Uh, Vera Powell was named in a report which alleged that while she was manager uh, Vera Powell of Houston Dash from November 2017 to September 2018, she shamed players for their weight and attempted to exert excessive control of their eating habits. Powell denied every allegation made against her and, as Kathleen said, uh, continues to deny those allegations up to and including yesterday. Uh, a month later then, she was among eight coaches sanctioned by the NWSL that's the National Women's Soccer League in North America. As part of their corrective action in response to the findings of the report, her future employment in the NWSL is conditional on acknowledging misconduct, participating in training and demonstrating a sincere commitment to correcting behaviour. Uh, and then Pau herself responded to those sanctions, saying she was in contact with an Iowa-based employment, discrimination and civil rights lawyer and vowed fully clear her name. And then, of course, this uh, this piece on Monday. Not only was Pau interviewed for that piece, but... Um, it chronicled her time at Houston Dash. Four ex-players and three former members of staff all interviewed under the cover of anonymity uh, discussed Powell's, what they said Powell's methods. They described them as, quote, abusive and inappropriate. Another said she, quote, created a culture of fear. Uh, so I guess the article on Monday is why this can of worms has been reopened. I know Joe Malloy spoke um, at, at length about this on, on the show during the week. Um, I think Joe's points were, were 
fair. I know he probably took a little bit of heat for from from some people for some of them because of the timing yeah. out of the World Cup. But like, I would also say that anyone who I know like the Joe's monologue was put out, but I would also encourage anyone who watched that and was given Joe a bit of heat to actually listen to the interview he did with the two authors of the article mm. because he properly interrogated them and. You know, a lot of people were saying he was anti-Vera and anti-the Ireland squad and anti-the World Cup. But if you listen to that interview in the context of what he said, that's not the case at all. It's an interrogation of the situation because the fact is we don't know. We only know what has been reported and what Vera has said and what the players have said in the media. So that's all we're going off. And we can only just keep asking those questions as well. Mm. It's a, it's one, and as, as as you say, Kathleen, we don't know the truth. And Joe said that himself as well. It, it could come out, and I guess Joe's issue, and and it's a very fair one, is how the FBI have dealt with this. You can't just say you've you've, you know, you've spoken to Vera Powell and spoken to one or two players. And I also think Vera Powell is saying, you know, she's spoken to the senior leadership group. I actually think she should be speaking to every single player individually. Mm. I don't think it's that difficult. But the, um, again, like it's also not on her to talk to them in the sense that. If your boss comes to you and says, "Do you have a problem with me?" Yeah, I get you. You're, you know, you're probably not going to tell them. Whereas, like, that's the one thing that came out of the joint investigation that was done in the NWSL was that, like, things don't actually come to light unless there is an independent, anonymous way of reporting things. Because, face it, we're going into a World Cup. If you actually had an issue with Vera Powell, you're not going to turn around and be like. I have an issue and she's going to be like well you're not going to the World Cup mm. or whatever she might not say that but mm. you know it, does, it feels like there's a simmering tension right and yeah. I, I, like, I was taking like I was watching all of um, the videos that Kathleen posted on her Twitter from the press conference uh, yesterday I was glued to all of them but one in particular was Katie McCabe's yeah. response to all things. We have that video. It's slightly longer than we usually play. It's a couple of minutes, but uh, we think it's worth it for, for the response. Uh, so this was the Irish captain, Katie McCabe, uh, discussing all these issues at the press conference yesterday. Have a look. Of course, it's a, a real negative distraction, but for us, we're solely focusing on what we have going forward. We have a game against one of the top five teams in the world tomorrow here in Tallis Stadium against France. A massive send-off game in front of our home fans that... I wasn't able to play two weeks ago, so I'm really looking forward to, to be able to be there with the girls tomorrow with that. Um, and we've got a massive four or five weeks ahead of us in Australia. And for us, yes, of course, it's a lot of external noise, but our fully focus is on these next few weeks um, and keeping together as a, as a group. And as a group, do you fully support your powers, your man? Yeah, we've built something over the last two and a half years, you know. Um, we've worked really hard together to contain the culture we have within the group um, in terms of, yeah, on and off the pitch. Um, we've had highs and we've had lows over the last few years. Um, and our jobs as, as staff and as players is to, to put in high quality performances for our country, and that's what we'll be looking to do for the next few weeks. And would you say that? You speak for the whole team, all 23. They're happy with Vera Powell's answer to those allegations? I can't answer for each and every player. Um, of course, Vera has a style of, of management um, that we're used to now over the, the last two years. It's something we've worked um, together. We've, we've argued with each other, of course. Like You're never going to get on 100% with your manager at times. She pushes me and I push her. Um, 
So, in, in my opinion, um, and from my personal relationship with her, of course, yeah, we've, we've clashed many a times, um, but we're always professional enough to, to make sure we are fully focused for the team. Um, and we know both of our, our hearts are in the right place in terms of wanting what's best for the Ireland women's national team going forward. And again, of course, the article timing is not great, um, but our full focus will be France tomorrow and then going into um, Colombia next week and then obviously kicking off um, our first ever World Cup. Interesting. Good answer. Yeah, Katie McCabe, very, very interesting. You're, you're obviously trying to read into uh, body language and, and what Katie McCabe is also saying there, but um, I guess she's... As she says, she can't speak for all of the players. The rest of the players in the squad, she can only speak for herself, which I think is fair. Yeah. Um, well, okay. I've had this argument a couple of times over since yesterday happened. She is the captain as well. Like I know she can say she can't speak for every player, but she is by being up there and answering these questions. She is speaking on behalf of the squad. But I, I do think in in any squad, say a squad of twenty three players, there you're going to have maybe yeah. you could have sixteen players who love the manager and eight players who despise the manager. I've done terrible maths there. Seven players who maybe despise <laughs> the manager. But you know what I mean. Like that, that that the, the entire squad. She may be the captain, but she may be getting different opinions herself. And yeah, I have no that's idea. True. That's true. So her answer was like totally understandable, but she could have worded it in a way that was like exactly like you said. It was like yeah. well, naturally in a squad of that size, not everyone's going to be happy with the manager, but. There's clearly um, there's a, clearly a tension between the two of them, I think, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I do think they get the best out of each other. Mm. But it would be, but you can feel like I thought McCabe had a few opportunities there to really um, kind of embellish just how much like Vera Powell has done for Irish football and how brilliant she is as a manager. But I thought she was, I thought her answer was very interesting. Mm. Yeah, I thought she, it was very, I thought I thought it was very revealing. Well, she did and she didn't. I think she gave her due credit. I think there's respect there for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's much beyond that mm. but it is funny because the two of them did the panel with us at the mansion house last week I know you guys weren't there but like their body language and the way they were talking was very very different to yesterday as well because obviously at that stage the article hadn't come out yes the allegations were still there but they kind of left the public consciousness a little bit I think and there definitely was like much more ease between the two of them, and well, I'm not even going to say between the two of them, but much more ease because obviously yesterday was a very tense and mm. difficult day. Yeah, it's one of those. It's one of those strange ones. And look, they had to address it yesterday. And you know, at the end of the press conference, I think Katie McCabe was basically like, uh, "What, what she, she had a, a passing comment about thanks for all the, for talking about the World Cup yeah. or thanks for covering the World thanks Cup, for covering the World Cup." Like, and and look, I understand the frustration that you know we're, we're literally a day out from the team leaving the uh, for the World Cup, and we're talking about this. But she has to understand, Katie McCabe, that this is the media. This is what happens. Is look if, it, if, it, if something like this comes into the. That's why we have to talk about it. That's why it was so tense, I think, because we are so close to the World Cup. We're on the eve yeah, of Ireland's first World Cup. Yeah. No one wants to say anything that's going to jeopardise what's about to happen on the pitch. Yeah. So I, but I thought the tension was just fascinating to watch. Like, mm. and I did think it was uh, revealing and and a good thing again that McCabe admitted that yeah, we do disagree all the time. Yeah. She pushes me and I pushes her. Because if she was like, no, 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 everything's fine. Everything, yeah. you know, no one's going to believe she that. She said that quite consistently as well over yeah. the last couple of months. Like, that's always been a thing between the two of them. I think she, I think McCabe's type of character who can't help but be honest. Yeah. And I think she wears her emotions on her face, a bit like Vera Powell. And they're actually probably quite similar characters in terms of their insane drive and competitiveness. Yeah. So I think they're, they'll bring the best out of each other. But it'll be fascinating down the line to see 
you know, if they're asked again about each other. Yeah. When sure. they don't when they lo- no longer work together. There's going to be like a magnificent profile or piece on these couple of weeks and like a couple, I say a couple of years, it could even be like in a year's time where someone deep dives into what every single player like a lot of the players were feeling over these last couple of weeks everything from the World Cup to the allegations to you know how they felt watching everything unfold in front of them and doing like a proper undercover I genuinely look forward to reading it whenever it happens for sure Uh, we should mention before we uh, leave the arena of football Mason Mount yesterday uh, securing and confirming that signing from Manchester United or to Manchester United from Chelsea initial £55 million five year deal an 18 year association with Chelsea ending he put up a a nice video saying goodbye and farewell to the Chelsea fans yesterday Uh, of course won the Champions League with Chelsea in 2021 first summer signing for uh, Eric Ten Hag and he will wear the iconic number seven Shirt at Old Trafford. No pressure with that jersey. Big one. And he can play about seven different positions. Yeah. So the the worry is like, uh, <laughs> where's he going to play? Is that, is that the only reason he deserves the jersey? Yeah. yeah. Where's he going to play? Like, because um, his best position is is probably central attacking, which is taken by Bruno Fernandes. Yeah. So he could drop deeper to play alongside Casemiro because Marcel Sabatzer's loan deal ended and they're not signing him permanently. And Eriksen can't really complete 90 Christian minutes. Christian Eriksen isn't so fit. Fred, the jury's very much out. McTominay's um, so, bashing and, things up for Scotland, though. Yeah, I don't think Ten Hag's the biggest McTominay no, fan. No. So it'll be interesting to see where he plays. It's not the most inspiring thing. £60 million. Pounds. Chelsea want to get rid of a lot of their players and they're continuing to do so. It's a decent signing. Decent. Well, let's you guys see. sound so unconvinced by this. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I'm very open about it. Well, I said last week, I think totally for the price, I prefer Mount at this price than Rice for his price. I know that the money is irrelevant. I believe it's the thing. I thought you would have had time to think about it. <laughs> no, no, like, no. Well, there you go, and he's about to sign for Arsenal. We'll find out next season who, who's the better signing. Well, I find Kathleen and them a lot more excited because they're about to sign Declan Rice. Yeah. Arsenal. Are you excited about Declan Rice? Uh, ah, come on. No, I am excited. I do, like, I think he is a sort of player that could work really well under Arteta I think he's a sort of player we need I like the fact that when he was talking about sign, well like the reporting that came out of why he signed is that he likes a club that has like a fan base and isn't you know he's not going to a city and I'm going to get loads of city supporters now giving <laughs> off to me about the fact I just said they don't have a fan base but um I don't know, I like, there's been few signings so far that Arteta has made that have gone, like, drastically wrong. Mm. And I don't think it's going to be, like, another situation where you're kind of asking where did all that money go. I don't think so anyways. I'm reserving judgment on how good it'll be. But also, the money that's being requested seems like so much when we talk about, like, the history of football players and what they go for, but it's also becoming kind of the norm for players of a certain standard yeah it definitely has um, it, it just none of the signings have really set hearts alight so far in the Premier League this year they're, they're obviously big money signings but uh, it remains to be seeing David De Gea's future at Old Trafford is, is also technically up, no longer a like, United player no he's out of contract yeah. and Andre Onana seems well certainly he seems open to move, moving from Inter Milan to Old Trafford if the interest is there and it certainly seems like the interest is there United making a bid for Andre Onana uh, yesterday so that's like a bid worth 45 million euros 38.5 million pounds um, apparently Eric Ten Hag is driving this move, uh, move he managed Onana at Ajax so of course they have that relationship already um, there is a gap apparently in valuation with Inter so Inter United have uh, bid 45 million euros as I said Inter won around 60 million euros but a compromise could well be struck United are looking at alternatives if agreement can't be reached but it appears David Hayes 
He's been the highest numbered. paid goalkeeper in the world for the last four years yeah. and hasn't performed as such. But then the, the years prior to that, he was consistently United's best player. He's either so his legacy, I think, it should be remembered, but his recent form, like I think there needs to be a separation. Yeah. And Ten Hag's priority this summer is a number nine and a goalkeeper. And I can see why. I don't think there are any United fans who would, who would be sad to see the hill leave at this point. They don't want the legacy ruined, as you said. Uh, there's also Wimbledon. Yeah, well, just a brief mention, Andy Murray, the the redemption. I like This is an incredible story. Like, <laughs> the, guy, the guy's a metal hip. He should be long retired. And uh, had a brilliant first round victory, like Hammers, uh, Peniston, his uh, British counterpart. And today, uh, plays Stefanos Tsitsipas, the fifth seed, Oof. in the second round. And look, Wimbledon's been... Draw. The schedule has yeah. been an absolute monumental disaster so far because of the rain. Yesterday, the uh, organisers made the curious decision to keep the roof open on Centre Court and Court 1, thinking mm. it's going to be a shower, so they were behind again. And it was a case yesterday where uh, Daria Kazakina won her match to progress to the third round, and there were still 80-odd matches in the first round yet to be completed. Right. So Tsitsipas played Dominic Team the brilliant Austrian who won the US Open three years ago mm. and since then has been absolutely riddled with injuries. Uh, it went to a fifth final set tie break and uh, Sitsipas came out on top but now Sitsipas has to play Andy Murray today so Murray has a serious chance of getting through. Can he beat Sitsipas? Oh yeah, he's beaten Sitsipas. Right. On, on different surfaces as well. Uh, he absolutely can and they, the one really interesting fact about this is like Murray's probably never been fitter since the surgery and his form's really good recently he played Djokovic in just a warm-up mess around game there last weekend mm. and easily won the first set reports say now there's no footage of this but <laughs> it's like the talent is there it's like and uh, it's a great opportunity to play Sitsipas because he will be wrecked today. right 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 is so, there any chance that they'll play on the Sunday because they're so behind uh, they do play Sundays now at Wimbledon. Oh, they yeah, do. they brought that in. Uh, they brought it in. I think it was it last year, the year before, was well, the year before. Yeah, the year before. I think they brought it in because twenty twenty there was no Wimbledon. Yeah, they brought it in because they found that they were uh, under massive pressure. I don't think pressure. they played the Sunday twenty twenty one because I was there that year. Oh, well, twenty yeah. So last year, so it was the first year they brought it in because they found that they were way behind schedule anyway, and they were up against it. So they are now, um, but it's simmering mm-hmm. as a result of that. Uh, also, Maria Sacri, the fifth seed on the women's side, won her first set six love yesterday and still lost the match. Now that's hard. Right. That rarely happens. That is insane. Yeah. Uh, there is it is on the back page of some of the papers as well. The Mirror. Uh, Kitty Boulder expects security to be stepped up after eco protesters disrupted yeah. her Wimbledon win. So this was another just up oil campaigner uh, or campaigners interrupting play by throwing orange confetti and jigsaw pieces on court eighteen. Two other protesters had invaded the same court earlier in the day, so she's the yeah. British number one, the only home winner. Yeah, Gregor Dimitrov is the other match that they interrupted. Richie McCormick made the very valid point in the news round last night. If they really wanted to disrupt play, they should have wet the surface so that the glitter would stay. Ah, yeah. Confetti would stay. Richie. You can easily get rid of it when it's dry. Richie with his evil mind. And Bolter helps clean up the confetti too. So you like the snooker? Oh, it wasn't as messy as the snooker, which was the argument. Yeah, yeah, they could have done more. They probably will do more. I'd say so, yeah, to be expected. Um, at 8.03am on uh, Thursday morning's OTBM, the sports breakfast show from Off the Ball. Plenty more to come between now and 10 o'clock. As we said earlier on, we have live commentary of the Republic of Ireland versus France on the show tonight. Nathan Murphy and Pearl Slattery on comms for that one. 7.45pm kickoff at Tallis Stadium. We'll uh, d- delve into that match further uh, with uh, the former Irish international Maeve de Burka in studio after this quick break. First though, more from the press conference yesterday. Here's Vera Powell's response. Um, I think it's the, the same uh, story as uh, in December. Um, it is um, something of a few anonymous players and how can you defend yourself uh, against a lie? Um, I've decided to read out one um, comment that I received. It, it is from the Netherlands. 
Um, it's from Barbara Baren. She is the key person who wrote about all the views in gymnastics. And she sent me this yesterday. I've translated it and I've asked her if I could use it. I don't put my hands in the fire for anyone, but for you and your pedagogically responsible interaction with players, I do that 100%. I know from so many players how important you are or have been for them inside and outside the pitch. You go beyond everything to choose the best for a person. Everyone can learn something from that. You can defend yourself against a lie. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. All right, six minutes past eight on this Thursday morning's OTBM, the Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball, with myself and Kathleen with you until 10 o'clock. We have uh, loads more still to come on the show. Uh, we'll preview Galway Limerick with Barry Hennessy, Antonio Gregan, Jess Kelly back from Wimbledon, and around nine o'clock, Paul Howard's episode of You Had to Be There. Before that, though, as they said, we have live commentary of the Republic of Ireland versus France tonight from Tallis Stadium. Pearl Slattery will be on comms alongside Nathan Murphy for that one. Delighted to have the former Irish international, Maeve de Burka, in studio with us this morning. Morning, Maeve. Morning, how are you doing? Keeping well. Thanks for popping in. I think it's your, your first time in studio with us. It is indeed. Yeah, first time in. Tuned in from South America the last time, I think. That's so. right. Yeah. Jesus, yeah. Bit of a <laughs> I different forgotten vibe. you were in South America the last <laughs> yeah. time we talked to you. Yeah, yeah. Slightly different like environment for this one. Indeed. Um, obviously, we're all excited for this game tonight. As I said, we have live commentary, but all, all the papers, it's hard to ignore it this morning. Uh, out to get me, Vera Pau says the allegations made against her are down to an agenda by one person who is, quote, trying to destroy my career. Like, all the, the papers, I guess, this morning have similar enough headlines. It's. Um, it's, it's timing that I guess the Irish team could have done without, but I guess they can't control the timing. This piece came out on Monday in The Athletic, and uh, it is what it is, but certainly tense enough press conference yesterday. Yeah, for sure. You could feel the kind of pressure, I think, that they were feeling with the questions being popped at them. And like you said, it's far from ideal timing, you know, on the eve of what should be a, which will be a great celebration, I think, um, tonight in Tala, but it just does kind of cast a little bit of an unfortunate shadow over the whole thing. Especially when they're putting Katie McCabe, I suppose out she has to, as captain, give her give her own view. But Katie, I thought spoke spoke well. She of course said, you know, I can't speak for all of the players, yeah. um, which is fair enough. She's the captain, but but I feel like she she maybe shouldn't and can't can't speak for every single player in that team. But I mean, it, it remains to be seen. We of course none of us know what what what's going on here in terms of the, the full truth as to what happened at, at Houston Dash. Um, but it's just one of those issues that timing wise. Yeah, bad. exactly. And I think it was kind of tough for Katie because when you're sitting beside the person you're, you're asked questions about, you know, it's very difficult and uh, with the cameras on you and everything, what else was she going to say? You know, in fairness, we don't know. Like you said, we don't know what happened, but uh, I think it was a very difficult situation and almost an uncomfortable watch for those people watching. I just think that just um, the lack of transparency really is, is what the problem is and the kind of just the lack of due diligence. Obviously, some people say the allegations aren't that... Um, you know, important or that, but you know, at the same time, you just need to, I think, make sure that the player welfare is is put to the fore, and um, yeah, just a lack of transparency and inconsistency is, I suppose, the big issue there, really, within. Yeah, and certainly to make sure the FAI investigate it properly, regardless of what the allegations are, how serious people people see them to be. Were there are many other questions, Kathleen, yesterday about the about the football? Was it like what, what percentage was it? In terms it, of, there were three questions in half an hour about the football, and I asked two of them. Right, Jeez, yeah. That <laughs> well, because I was just like, it got to the kind of the way these things work is like you have a live section, and then you have stuff that's embargoed for the yeah. papers in the morning, and it was kind of getting to the end of the live section, and I was like curious as to the team that's going to play tonight. You know, <laughs> how close is it going to be to what we might see in Sydney? And like I said earlier, obviously you know these questions have to be asked but I just felt like they had been asked mm. quite a lot already at that stage and there was no point 
hammer I didn't think a different answer was going to come and it, mm. I was right like a different answer didn't come but um, yeah no I'd say in a half an hour of talking there were exactly three questions about the football right so you can that's I guess where Kitty McCabe's little throwaway line at the end came from thanks for asking about the World Cup or. yeah well like you could understand her frustration as well like if you're a player and yeah. like they've worked so hard to get here and mm. they have done fantastically well so um, you know hopefully I suppose it's one of those that it just needs to be talked about in this moment but and hopefully like we said it, it is dealt with but mm. perhaps the timing right now is, is more so that I think there will be a bit more of a focus on the football hopefully yeah because that's the thing I asked a couple of the players about it over the last few weeks because obviously there's been so much in that the preliminary squad was announced and then you had the players in the preliminary squad who were maybe on the edge were trying to get in but also still doing all this media and build up to the World Cup then the squad was announced and there was all the hype and emotion around that and then there's been so many events in the last week or so you know they were in Farmley the other night when this article was it was the day after the article was released and you know they're getting pictures of the Taoiseach and the Tasha and the sports minister so you're already dealing with all the emotion and build up with that and then you add this on top of it as well like I don't know how when you're a player and you're dealing with like a tense situation how easy is it to whatever it might be just kind of I suppose take yourself out of that and focus on what's happening That's on the pitch the thing. It, I think it would take a lot of adaptation because they're not used to all this media attention which is fantastic uh, external noise I suppose as Katie referenced it yesterday but um, you know I'm, I'm sure they will be glad just to nearly get into a little bubble almost over in Australia and just focus on the football obviously they still have media duties and stuff but I don't think it'll be on the same level of intensity as it has that they've experienced like you said even with that at training camp which can be which they all came out I suppose at the time they said it wasn't too bad but then it was later emerged it was the most intense kind of two weeks of camp ever so um, yeah I think they'll just be happy like I said just to get in and, and just focus on the football and I'm sure tonight in Tala that's what they'll be doing as well so that, that is kind of the way these things work like there's a, a maybe a media storm over an issue like this uh, or allegations like this and, and the players themselves you'd like to think a lot of the players aren't reading newspapers aren't listening to media coverage at all especially now in advance of the World Cup I guess they don't need that um, but then of course something like this pops up and FAI press people and media uh, people have to basically warn the players and tell them look if you're asked about it this is what you should say that's just the way the media works um, it's, it's of course a side of it that these footballers never signed up for you know, they're yeah. not signed up to be PR people or to mm. uh, answer questions necessarily at all you know, they're there to play football but it's just a side of the, of the game that they have to be prepared for especially in advance of the World Cup as you say this is because th- this Irish team are getting so much coverage rightly now because they've qualified for mm. a first World Cup mm-hmm. uh, and this is the, the byproduct of it the byside of it I guess that they have to deal with yeah. they are also all incredibly well spoken because they've had to spend so much time mm. putting themselves forward and you know advocating for themselves and saying look at us give us the coverage yeah. talk about our football like as well as they play on the pitch they're also all quite good speakers but I suppose this is sort of the situation you never expect to have to answer questions about and they're probably thinking even you know because obviously this is what two weeks before the first World Cup game mm. and, and we're talking about the likes of this but even after the the Scotland game you know the greatest night of their lives then of course there's the song in the dressing room and all the <sighs> all the madness that came out of that so they must be thinking we can't so they're used to off pitch matters being the topic yeah. of discussion now I guess so it's yeah. probably good practice for them in some ways you know because 
these things do crop up. Yeah, and if anything was you know to happen within the World Cup situation as well, I suppose they're definitely going to be the most equipped team nearly to deal with it. But you can see they're not the only ones. You know, a lot of the teams going into the World Cup now have little kind of shadows, I suppose, um, hanging over them for various different reasons. And um, yeah, but like I said, that's the nature now of the women's game. This wasn't the case, uh, you know, eight years ago, like maybe four years ago. There a little bit more but now that just comes with the increased media coverage and um, it's part and parcel of it really I suppose for them Of course the, the, the game itself then tonight Maeve and obviously in, in, in one way you think you know a maybe nice handy 4-0 friendly win over some smaller nation might be perfect heading into a World Cup as it is it's the, the fifth best team in the world according to the rankings France um, but this has kind of been consistent with Vera Pau over the last couple of years she's, she's always aimed for a bigger opposition I guess yeah she has in fairness and I think it'll be a really really good test for them tonight because it's going to be um, better than the calibre of the opposition they're going to face in the group ga- games at least or hoping <laughs> in advance that they, it won't be just three games they're playing so um, yeah I think you know France are a really strong powerful like physical team they're great attack and defend and everything they're really I think nearly a complete team and now they're you know Reynard is after coming in so it'll be interesting to see you know a manager coming in four months before a tournament starts how, what he can implement but I, I think by all accounts like he's a proven winner so I think it should be an interesting one They're, they're quick on the flanks France as well by all accounts like have a lot of pace like, are they are they similar in any way to teams we might face in the group like Canada, Australia? I guess coming up against uh, some of those French forwards might prepare you a little bit for Sam Kerr, but yeah. there are maybe similarities that that Pau has has. I guess there's reasons why Vera Pau has picked France in particular. Definitely, yeah. I mean, even there, when you talk about the pace, I nearly get flashbacks of the last time we played them, and they're just running over the top all the time, chasing, turning their backs, and chasing. So, um, but I don't think I think you know Ireland will sit in so that you know that maybe that kind of strength of, of France they they won't be able to exploit it as much. But for sure, they're they're really powerful. They're really. Um, Fast and quick, and yeah, they've they, like um, they've La Summer, like Ireland, or sorry, France's top um, leading goal scorer mm. up front. She's recently come back into the squad. Um, I would have played against her multiple times under 19 and senior level, and Henri as well. Um, Amandi and Henri is back as well, so I think yeah, they're really like their attacking force is something to be. What um, do they like to yeah. play against? They were, actually, uh, I would say, if I was watching it, it would have been a nice game to watch. But uh, <laughs> when you're in the mix and, uh, you know, if the third goal goes in and then the fourth goal, then, you know, it's um, always a bit of a daunting task. Yeah. But um, definitely, I think, um, yeah, I think they're one of the teams I think I would pick nearly as favourites um, for the tournament, even though they're they're not uh, ranked as, as favourites or that. But I think if they kind of, if things click for them, I think they could be really, um, really good. And um, yeah, it's just going to be, be interesting to see now how tonight pans out as well. In terms of the Irish squad, like what are you expecting from who Vera is going to pick and put yeah, in? Yeah, I think, well, she said herself, I suppose it's going to be as close to the team that um, that starts next mm. or in, in Sydney um, that, that she can. So I think... Um, yeah, I, th- I don't think. Well, there's always one surprise or two, isn't there? I was going to say I don't expect many surprises, but I'd be lying. So, um, you know, predict a team, and there there would probably be at least one that that we're not quite expecting. But, um, but yeah, I think she's going to go for experience, and um, I think. But I think we will see the um, Sinead and Marissa as well coming. Mm. Um, Full home yeah. debuts for them. 
think so. Anyways, that's I, I suppose. Uh, um, Sinead only has one cap as well. She yeah, kind of needs another one. It's crazy, really. That <laughs> players, yeah. yeah, the players have never played in a uh, football match in Ireland, and now they're going to represent Ireland. You know, in a World Cup, but um, especially with Sinead, she's probably close enough to the starting team as well. Yeah, more so than Marissa. Yeah, could be in there. Like I wouldn't be all that surprised, but Sinead definitely with the, how we lined up against the US. Yeah, I think so, and I, I think she kind of is. Um, you know, by all accounts, a really good player. So I think I think we'll see her in from the start tonight. Uh, is Vera Powell almost gonna? Do, would you expect her to almost set aside the opposition tonight? Like, is she, is she setting up tonight for Australia, or is she setting up tonight for France? I think I think she'll be setting up for Australia with them in mind. At least I don't think she'll um, kind of zone in. A, necessarily on the individual players of France obviously they will still talk about it in meetings and their strengths and weaknesses and all that but I think the general structure and um, you know whether they were to like if they're to implement some form of I don't know man marking job I don't think that I don't think that's done really nowadays but like uh, you know if someone has to take more um, of the I suppose the, the attention of Sam Kerr maybe they'll do the same with the, the French, stri- French striker this morning or this evening who, who could be Le Sommer. so um, no I think they'll still have have Australia completely, I think, in their mind, yeah. What, uh, so I guess she's, Vera Powell's already said she's going to play her strongest team that she possibly can for tonight's game. What team would you like to see? Oh, <laughs> what I'd this like is, to see versus what? Well, yeah, does yeah. it differ massively, your team versus... Uh, well, team? I'd have players starting who aren't in the squad, but that's, right. uh, uh, we don't have <laughs> that option. I could only pick from the 23 that are there Who's now. Who's not in the squad? Who's not in the squad that you would have had in your 11? Uh, Roma McLaughlin, um, Jamie Finn, to name but two right. yeah I don't know I could probably go on but that's two that spring to mind anyway Roma's um, an interesting one because she wasn't even in the preliminary yeah I think squad. she's quality like even when she played in America as well um, mm-hmm. with her college team um, I actually saw her play live over there um, a couple of times and she's really like such a technical player I think as well I think I don't know she was overlooked slightly but again it could, you know there could be reasons for that too um, yeah. you know we can't see from the outside how she performed within the mm-hmm. camp as well but um, that's fine for us to say but yeah maybe they see different qualities in her as well and that but um, yeah I suppose at the back um, I'd see definitely Louise and Neve um, as two of the back three and I'd probably think that um, Megan Connolly will probably be switched back there as well yeah and then I'd imagine Heather and Katie um, to make up the back five and then I think probably well obviously Denise um, will be a definite starter and um, I think she'd put Lily Ag in there beside her Uh, toss up between Roosh I think and Lily Ag but I think maybe she might go I'm not sure really because Lily Ag was actually left out of the squad against Zambia but obviously I suppose with the reason that she was definitely yeah. um, definitely going to be to be in I suppose and um, Rich is kind of a weird one because obviously she suffered so much with injuries over the last yeah, couple of months that's and the thing I don't know how does she have 90 minutes in yeah. there yeah, I'm not sure and like would you know. rather put her on for the last like 20 or something or put her on take her off kind yeah, of early and if that's, she's struggling I suppose that's what they'll see maybe, uh, maybe they will start her and see how she gets on um, and see what's kind of in the tank um, but then yeah I think then she'll, I think she'll start Sinead and I actually think she may start Marissa as well yeah. you know again we haven't seen much much mm-hmm. of her but um, I, I would probably have Abby Larkin maybe um, in there or you know one of the kind of more um, the other attacking players and then I think up front she'll go for Kira Caruso I think mm-hmm. um, just I suppose just given how she has the history on who she has played I suppose is how but it's kind of interesting because six of them actually of that starting team weren't even in the squad for Zambia so um, it'll be a completely different change to the team How close is Amber Barrett to a start? 
I don't. I, I think that's a really, really interesting one because um, it's kind of like actually. I think England are facing a similar situation with Russo and Daly. You know, um, Russo or Amber in our case is so great off the bench that um, and she's made such an impact. And it must be very frustrating, I'd imagine, for her not to be getting a start because she's done everything. What more can she do? Like come on and score. You know. Um, so yeah, I think. I think. Uh, I'd also like to see her given a chance from the start and even yeah. tonight, even if it's not fully in her head to do it, I think it'd be great to see her given the chance and, you know, just to prove what she can do from the start. And like I said, we still have plenty of firepower from the bench as well. So, um, yeah, that, that's definitely going to be one of the more interesting positions mm-hmm. to see who she goes there. Who Slightly off-piece from like the Ireland game, but you mentioned the Russo-Daily question and I'm so curious as to what Vigman's going to go for. Because if you look at the season, like... Daly is the better player but also yes, for yeah. all the Euros she played in defence and Russo was like yeah. the player yeah. that everyone was calling out for to come off the bench being like why are we starting Ellen White like yeah. start Russo and then Ellen White retired and now all the English fans are like oh no bring back <laughs> Ellen White she was really good she scored us goals yeah, yeah it's, it is an interesting one but yeah like Russo's just impact off the bench is it's hard mm. to ignore too and like when um, you know players legs are tired and stuff like that as well like she does seem to have the the more of an impact but yeah to go it's just such credit to Daly to go from like a starter as generally versatile players may not always be on the the starting team it's really rare I can't remember a time where someone has started in one tournament played every game um, in defence and then is in line to start um, just the next year in another tournament in a completely different position having scored yeah like you said 22 goals in 22 games in England and not even for a top team that's the one I suppose if she was like Sam Kerr or that in one of the top teams it's obviously easier to get more more ball yeah. and um, the scoring rate wouldn't be as I suppose impressive but for her she's done so well I, I think I think Daly will start I don't know I think yeah. that's how she's going to go and, I did just yeah. love all the US fans this season whenever WSL fans are like wow Rachel Daly is a really good forward and they're like guys <laughs> you've been sitting on a secret for a couple of years now yeah exactly yeah she'd go yeah club for, obviously yeah for club she's played forward yeah. um, for a long time then. I suppose it's similar to Anya as well in our case we've Anya playing um, as a defender now with the national team and um, striker you know for um, for over so um, but it's just been adaptable I suppose and, and players at that level can do that bit farcical from Manchester's perspective that Alessia Russo was allowed ultimately to leave on a free transfer yeah. but like look, she's brilliant as a third summer signing for Arsenal she's only 24 she's had a few good seasons at United as well like how good a signing is that for Arsenal will, will that take them to the next level I, do you think I think so like when you look at the kind of they're just stacked now with talent across their, their front line they've so many options Blackstinius I'm not sure where she fits in now nearly with, with the options they have but yeah as a Man United fan it wasn't great business I think to see Russo um, go on a free you know um, it just it was an, I think an opportunity lost you know and um, for her I think it's a good move I think she'll um, yeah she, she'll learn a lot there as well I think and I suppose that maybe it's it, it shows, you know, as a United fan, her her leaving. It must have taken a lot, you know, for her to leave, and it might say something about how maybe how the club has been run there. You know that that she found Arsenal a more attractive. Well, I think offer, if you, you know. look at the reporting around it, basically United wanted to keep her, but also didn't offer her great terms on the deal, and then at the very last minute came back into the situation, and we're like master wages at the end. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. she was just like frustrated with how the club had operated up until that point, and yeah. as you say, as. Someone who's grown up as a United fan, you know, 
it takes a bit for you to leave and for your club to treat you like that. It's probably almost worse if you're a fan. And I think so, yeah, because, it, you know, kind of the emotion side of it wouldn't come into it that much, you know, mm. anymore. But, yeah, it, I'd say, um, yeah, it just shows, I mean, it shows the appeal of Arsenal as well, you know, I would imagine how they have such a history in the women's game too, you know, our, um, Man United are really only a new, new force as well. So, um, yeah, I think all eyes would be on Arsenal, I think, as a team to beat next season there, for sure. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, fan in the corner here. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah well, I, I think we would have won the WSL this year if everyone had stayed fit. Yeah, I mean, yeah. their their uh, history record was Very just crazy. Very unlucky injuries, ACLs left, right and centre. Yeah, just, just popping like... Oh. Oh, constantly. Um, ahead of the Irish World Cup um, bid, I guess maybe we'll call it, Like, what, where, where in the, on, on the team is your biggest concern? Like, Do, do you have any gaping concerns in the, in the squad or the team at the moment? Yeah, nothing like they... negative, but I mean, we should be realistic <laughs> here as well, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they've performed so well and they probably know themselves where their weaknesses lie and, and you know, how they can counteract them and that. But um, I thought against Zambia, because we pushed on and we tried to attack a lot more than we would against higher-ranked teams, that maybe our lack of pace at the back was slightly um, exposed, um, particularly for the last goal, I think. But... I don't think that will be a case, you know, because I would imagine us sitting in a low block against mm. um, probably all the teams, slightly less so against Nigeria maybe, um, particularly if we have to get something out of that game. I think we'll go a little bit more, um, kind of more attacking slightly. But um, yeah, I mean, we, we usually do sit in and, and try to get set pieces and that's, that's how we're the best, I think, as well. Um, and, you know, any kind of... I suppose risks we take going forward they're calculated risks so it's kind of they know we always usually have plenty of cover and that so it would mainly I think just on a counter attack from a set piece is where um, you know it would be possibly we might be vulnerable you know but I think I think come by the time um, our first game rolls around I think they'll have that all kind of under under control <laughs> hopefully we will be you'd imagine tonight sitting back and defending for a vast majority of those 90 minutes like yeah. that's just realistic I know we had that unbelievable record of not conceding a goal for for I don't can't remember how long it was but it was an incredible run of games um, and then obviously the couple of games in America and then the Zambia game the Zambia game you can probably discount a lot of changes to the team yeah. probably nerves pre-squad announcement as well that sort of thing but if, if, they, if they can just refine that that era where they weren't conceding goals whatsoever That'd be kind of nice. <laughs> no, don't, it don't, would don't <laughs> definitely be kind of nice. Um, you know, those be enough to get us through the group. I don't know. I know. I was uh, doing those permutations. Didn't I think Portugal in the men's side? I think maybe have yeah, qualified without before. winning a game. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, if we don't concede, we'll probably. You're right. If we don't concede, we'll probably qualify um, to the next uh, round. So yeah, it's not not too bad. I suppose the permutation, but yeah, I think that's it. It's, that's the most important thing is just to be really, really hard to break down and not to give up any easy goals you know make whatever team if they are to score to work hard for it and um, yeah like I said it probably wouldn't be a team renowned for scoring a lot of goals so I think obviously we need to limit limit the amount of chances and the goals we give up and then hopefully like I said even you know a counter attack like um, that night in Hamden or, or that you know I think we are well capable of, of counter attacking but um, I think it needs to be done yeah at speed is, is the main thing really um, because it's it's hard though when you're defending for such long periods in a game to then want to just go when you get the ball the kind of usual reaction is to just relax mm-hmm. and take a breather for a minute but um, in our case I think we need to once we win it then try to see if the early ball is on um, obviously if it's not then we can try to control it a little bit but 
It's kind of the frustrating thing with not having Mannion in the squad because she probably gave us the option of playing out from the back a little bit more and doing so with like pace, whereas we don't really have that option unless it's like Katie and Heather coming up the wings, but even still, you probably don't want them pulled out of position too much. Maybe more, a little more if Megan Connolly is back there, you know, I suppose um, given that she's played in midfield as well, maybe there might be a bit more kind of of that to be seen, but you're right, Aoife definitely showed that when she was in, and I think you could see a a kind of a few long balls going astray, particularly earlier on in the Mm. Sandy game. Um, They just kind of seemed to not have many ideas, but I think, again, like that law be dissected into Mm. um, into pieces. Well, it just reminded me of how we were playing like maybe six or seven months ago when we still were so dependent on just hoofing the ball up to Heather when she was playing up front and oh, was, yeah. <laughs> how, Difficult watch, how yeah. often did we like after game say god she's she's great at running because all she did was like run and run and run yeah, for games and like, to chase balls down or like chase players down but in terms of the actual options to scoring very rarely was there actually one properly on? That's the thing. And I was recently talking, obviously Heather um, played with Salt 11 where I grew up playing as well. And I was talking to someone uh, in the club recently and we just said how frustrating it was for us to watch her up front given that we'd seen her has been so incredible on the wing all throughout her career, her um, club career with Salt Hill and that. So um, it's, She it's seems just, quite happy. Like I was chatting yeah. to her last week about it and I was like, you know, how are you finding the switch for the national team? And she is like, it's way more comfortable Yeah, you can me. just see, like she's just so comfortable there. She, obviously she's a workhorse anyway and she did like a, um, as good a job as possible up front And but she was just chasing down aimless balls a lot but now you can just see her she's uh, really kind of coming into her own you can see her kind of she almost glides with the ball like at her feet it's, you know it, it, it doesn't really even sometimes the way she runs it, you wouldn't even know she has the ball with her because it's that kind of um, effortless I suppose but yeah it is it's great to see her there finally and um, yeah I mean I think Carusa or Amber Bard is, is a great option up front as well so um I don't think you know I think it, it'll only benefit the team Cruz is quite an underrated player I think because she hasn't played in leagues that people watch all that often yeah, people are almost like slightly surprised even though she had quite a good goal scoring record at her club and yeah. you know again like you were saying about Heather it has always puzzled me who we've played up front when we do actually have players that naturally play in that position whether it's like Carusa or even the likes of Leanne Kiernan, I'm not sh- I know she's not in this squad, but yeah. she's always been there. Amber Barrett, there are quite a few options that we could have had. That's the thing, and Caruso, I suppose, gives the option of kind of a holder player as well. Mm-hmm. So um, it does, it does really, I suppose, depend on how how we're going to play. And I suppose, unfortunately, maybe from Amber's point of view, is that we're going to be playing like um, tougher teams where we're not going to maybe have as many chances to run over the top. We're just going to try to look for that out ball and try mm-hmm. to relieve the pressure a bit more, but. But yeah, I still going back to what we were saying earlier. I would love love to see um, Amber given a chance from the start tonight. But um, you know, I suppose it remains to be seen whether we'll see that or not. Some of the players that we haven't even mentioned in the twenty three uh, person squad, like that. I mean, Vera doesn't exactly go beyond many of the, of the players in terms of subs. Like you're probably thinking sixteen, seventeen. Of that oh, 23 will maximum I'd say maximum. yeah because even if you look at a record in competitive games it's generally one or two subs um, right. like in in friendlies a little bit more but or yeah more but um, in the last few games it's like it's yeah usually up to two would be probably mm-hmm. now you might see more in a tournament situation but I'd, I still don't think so because even I think the first game before their um, second game against 
against Canada that they have an extra day's rest in Canada as well so mm. I think it's because yeah. the team is travelling so much yeah. they have an yeah. extra exactly that five hour trek it's not like a, it's not going all the way to Dublin now in no. fairness uh, Sydney to Perth is a little bit longer um, so yeah I think yeah like I said there, there's so many players who won't see the, the field like over Looking there at the list like yeah. even in the defenders Izzy Atkinson uh, Clara Reardon possibly even midfielders Kira Grant um, Lucy Quinn like th- these players, of course, could well play and could, could play, have some involvement in the World Cup, but they're, they're probably borderline uh, yeah. as to even make an appearance. And that's why I think it was interesting, even given Ethan Mannion, say, for example, was left out. Like like we're saying there, the reality is five or six players won't play over there. So you kind of nearly can take a risk, could have taken a risk almost on those um, players. But um, same, I mean, when England England won the, the Euros last year, you didn't see much variation from um, their starting team and, and the subs who came on either. So I think once the team is set, even I think tonight is going to be uh, really, really um, interesting because I think that it's going to be those 11 players that play tonight will will definitely feature, you know, in the World Cup. Well, hopefully will definitely feature in the World Cup. Um, but yeah, I can't see any more than like... 14, 15, yeah. Right. It's funny how stressed yeah. we were over the 23 and who was going to get paid. <laughs> That's what and I, yeah. Well, it was like the day before the squad was announced and I felt so like tense and nervous. And then I was talking to someone about there, like, Kathleen, realistically, you're not actually going to see half of these players yeah. anyways. Yeah, and that's why even I, I was talking to, to someone about it when we were predicting our um, our teams over and back and I had actually said, I, I don't see Jamie Finbin in the squad. And she was like, no, no, she's going to start. And I was like, no, I think she should start. But yeah. um, but, but um, I was saying that I think it would have been great to see some of the younger players, I think, um, you know, the likes of Aaron McLaughlin and Tara to be maybe have been just thrown in the mix there. And and like we said there, the, the chances are they probably wouldn't have got to the pitch. But can mm. you imagine the experience they'd have trying to qualify then, you know, and yeah. bring that with them throughout the... I thought it was interesting, Vera, saying that Tara probably would have been in the squad if Izzy Atkinson hadn't have played so well. That's true. Like and that's it's, how tight yeah, the margins are. And it's very unfortunate. I think she had her PE leave and search exam the next oh. day as well. So she was, like, she did well to juggle all that, yeah. you know. And I know she definitely has a bright future ahead. But it would would have been such great experience for them to have experienced a tournament situation. And you know, would it, but anyway, that's it's the squad she chose at the end of the day, I suppose. Yeah. Before we let you go, Maeve, score prediction. How do you see tonight going? Oh, it's a tricky one. Uh, head or heart is always yeah. the question here. Nil uh, nil. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, I think a nil nil would be great. Um, yeah, I think, I think I'm going to go for a draw. Um, I'll, yeah, I mean. Yes, it probably is a little bit more the head here, but, or the heart, I mean, but uh, I'll go for a one-all draw. Let's see how that works out. We'll take it, we'll take it. Definitely uh, take that. <laughs> Barrett, goal off the bench again. Yeah, yeah. Um, great stuff, Maeve, thanks for coming in. Thanks as, a lot. As usual, great to have you in studio. Maeve de Burke there, the former Irish international, should mention at uh, 8.35am on this Thursday morning's OTBM, the sports breakfast show from Off the Ball. Braeburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of OTB. Braeburn Coffee is coming to an Apple Green near you. New Braeburn locations are popping up every month, so visit applegreenstores.com forward slash Brayburn to find your nearest Brayburn coffee experience up next we'll have Barry Hennessy Antonio Grieg in the preview Galway versus Limerick in the All-Ireland Senior Hurling semi-final this Saturday first though the final clip from yesterday's press conference more here from Vera Power. so you feel that if you were a male coach the reaction to this wouldn't have been the same I'll go through, through the allegations and just put Pep Guardiola or Louis van Gaal or Mourinho in that then you would actually laugh about it because it's all about coaching. It's all about coaching. It's not about anything else. So I don't want to go into the details because um, it, it is nonsense, it's untrue. And uh, as I said before, there's great safety in the truth. 
and uh, that truth is with me and the people around me, the people who know me, the people who saw me working know that it's not true. There's not one single per- person um, who knows me for a long time has put any question mark about behind it. So um, that is my safety and that's what I'm carrying with me. I need to have my full energy for, for these players um, and uh, many players came to um, to support and to ask what, what a crap or what a nonsense it was because they know me so differently um, as well as from all the other teams that I've been coaching so I want to leave it with that um, I will never win from a lie um, that is clear now whatever you do you don't win from a lie and uh, I have to uh, live with it and carry it with me the rest of my life I'm afraid yeah, 8.37am on this Thursday morning's OTBM, the sports breakfast show from Off the Ball with myself and Kath- Kathleen live with you until 10 o'clock. That was the last clip we had uh, from Vera Pau speaking at yesterday's press conference. Loads more clips. Uh, Kathleen was, of course, there for us. Uh, you'll get them up on the YouTube.com forward slash Off the Ball where you can subscribe as well to our YouTube channel. We're going to turn our attention now to matters hurling, of course, the small matter of the All-Ireland Senior Hurling Championship semi-final between Galway and Limerick this coming Saturday at Croke Park. Kenny and Clare then on Sunday afternoon. Delighted to welcome to the show this morning the former Limerick hurler Barry Hennessy and the former Galway hurler Tony O'Gregan. Barry and Tony, morning, how are things? Morning, everyone. How are we getting on? Keeping well, lads. Keeping well. Thanks for joining us. Um, Tony, we might start with yourself. This is a, a small task playing Limerick in an All Ireland semi final. It should be a should be a bit of a cracker. Um, it's been a funny season for Galway. Ten points down to, to Dublin at half time, losing to Kenny by a goal then as well. But uh, it's been patchy, a lot of wides in some of those games. But how do you feel about the season so far? I guess it's it's coming together now in the last four. Anything can happen. Yeah, I think those inconsistencies in game have probably really confused, I suppose, players, management and supporters. And uh, I think the last day, in fairness, against Tip, there was probably a more consistent performance through the 70-75 minutes. So I think all supporters will be hoping that we can, you know, bring that intensity and bring that level of application for a full 70 minutes. And then you're really putting Limerick under pressure this weekend. Um, Barry, from your perspective, from the Limerick perspective, I guess in, in recent seasons it's been it's been sheer dominance. This year, Limerick haven't beaten a team in the championship by more than two points. Is it fair to say that the the rest of the chasing pack have have caught up to or are catching up to Limerick at this point? Yeah, Shane. Um, I think that the, the chasing pack, as we call them, I don't think they got the credit they deserve this year. To be honest, um, they've obviously raised their own standards internally across the the, the team, and I think a lot was spoken about how Limerick has maybe fallen back a little bit instead of how the, the, the chance of back has caught up with them and to be fair if you look at all the games this year like the, the level of intensity that other teams brought um, like it's the first time in a long time I've seen Limerick players being chased you know with manic aggression and being hit every chance that uh, a team got to hit them you know and stopped their build up play so um, I think great credit goes to, to those teams you know they, they've obviously raised their standards and it's made a Great championship so far. So. Um, Tony, come back to yourself. Uh, we'll, we'll get Barry's line back up in a second. Just a little bit difficult to hear him there. Um, from Galway perspective, do you expect changes to the team much? Dahi Burke staying at six, or, or will he be moved around? Do you think? No, I think it'd be really important that Galway kind of can stay consistent with their defensive system. Now that you know, I think the team are comfortable with Garrow at three and Dahi at six, and 
you know, I think the more they can keep those players in those central positions, the more kind of structure and organisation we have as a team. And it just brings that kind of confidence and solidity around around the back line. So, you know, when I see Galway, maybe Dahi's gone to wing back and Garage is out on the sideline, mm. I get kind of worried because I kind of tend to think that we're very open down the middle, as you were seeing in the Leinster final. So the more time the boys spend in those central positions, I think the more solidness we'll see in, in our defensive structure. And I think that will be vital in terms of Saturday evening if they're to hold this Limerick attack at bay. It's been a question that we've asked practically every person, whether they're a pundit or a player or a manager on the show. But for you, like, what is the key things that Galway can do to actually beat Limerick in this game? Yeah, I think um, if you look at last year's semi-final, I think Galway started extremely well and just probably didn't execute five or six scoring chances in that first quarter that could have put a gap of five or six points on Limerick. And then coming down the stretch, I think, uh, you know, Galway brought their subs on off the bench. And, you know, I think the thinking at the time was maybe some of these subs hadn't got enough game time during the season. And, uh, you know, that match sharpness, like take, for example, Evan Island come on at two or three shots at goal. Like normally Evan is nine out of 10 times you'd hit the target and score. But when he come on last year, probably hadn't enough match time last year and wasn't as accurate when he come on. So you can absolutely see throughout the league and the Leinster Championship this year that they, you know, really spread that load in terms of game time and changing up the team and, and bringing on subs early. And uh, I think... You know, if Galway gets that last quarter within a score, Limerick, uh, they know they have a bench that can impact like they did against Tip the last day. Now, there's a couple of things have changed this week in terms of Jason Flynn getting a hamstring injury. Like Jason has had a huge impact against Dublin and Kilkenny when he's come in against Tip again the last day. So that's one out of the equation for Galway that you can spring that last quarter. You know, do we start Tom Monaghan? I suppose is another question now for management to bring forth that uh, Tom has been exceptional for Galway the last two seasons and probably creating four or five scores from midfield or half forward as well as, you know, hitting his own three or four points per game as well. So that's another dilemma for management. Do they start Tom or do they, you know, wait for his energy to come into it in the second half when maybe Limerick's half back in midfield area might have more space in it. Um, so they're kind of little dilemmas management will have to come up with in terms of who are the two or three impact players that will, you know, add scores and add cr- creation in that middle third and, and that final third for Galway in that last quarter. And, you know, I think that it will be the difference because when you look at Limerick's bench last year, David Reedy, come on, you know, Peter Casey um, this year, will Keane Lynch be starting? So, you know, they probably have a few more cards in terms of fit players at the moment and experienced players to bring into that last quarter that could tip the scales again this season. Yeah, Barry, Declan Hannan's absence, how significant is that for Limerick? Um, I suppose in the grand scheme of things, Shane, it's, it's, it's massive. Do you know, Declan's hurling IQ and his awareness is massive. Um, and just his ability to read a game and provide that cover that's needed for the, the guy beside him or the line behind him, you know, so like he really is that on-field leader in general. Um, but look, I suppose throughout the last couple of years, there's always been a significant injury in the camp and the mantra has always been next man up. So it'll be interesting to see how the squad responds to that at the weekend and see who takes the opportunity with both hands and runs with it. And who is that next man up? Like, do you expect Kyle Hayes to move to to six? Someone like Colin Cochran, I guess, can move to to seven. Michael Dignan, interestingly, this week, and I was speaking to Tommy Welch about this yesterday in the studio, um, Dignan suggesting that maybe Kane Lynch could be a rabbit out of the hat and move to to number six. Who would you expect to be the the person to take up that role? 
I'd like to think it was uh, Nicky Quaid, Shane, and that uh, John was calling me back in there in the morning to come back into the squad. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> we were waiting long enough for it. But um, no, I think um, personally, I'd love to see Barry Nash there because of the skill set he brings, you know, right. and he's, uh, he's an out and out ball player. But I could see Dan Morrissey just slotting in there. Um, I think someone, but Paul Murphy described him yesterday as Mr. Dependable, you know, and he's that guy, like, he's it's rare that. Dan is in the, the limelight for making a mistake. Do you know, he does the, the basics, the bread and butter well. And it's probably an easier switch for, for John and the management team just to push one net out and bring in maybe the likes of Richie English into the corner rather than moving two or three lads around the place. So. Are there any concerns? Didn't they move Dan Morrissey from three to six against Cork, was it? And it, they kind of almost immediately moved him back. It didn't seem to work. Is there any concerns there? I guess, as you say, though, generally speaking, Dan Morrissey is Mr. Dependable. Yeah, like I suppose they've had four weeks as well, Shane, to you know to try some training too. So uh, I suppose Dan hadn't played at six in a while. So like the last four weeks, you think would have stood to to whoever they're going to try there. You know, there's going to be a lot of in uh, house games there and scenarios uh, put at whoever that person's going to be. Um, and I think that look, they'll be prepared for that, and they'll they'll know that the lads in front of them had to provide that cover as well to allow Dan to provide the cover behind them as well. So I'm sure they've worked on to to, to you know to stage. Uh, Tony Conor Whelan I guess has been the talk of the one of the, the, the players that's been the talk of the championship uh, thus far uh, 2 in his last two games um, is there is there a responsibility now that the, the rest of the goal forwards to kind of step up and, and, and almost help him in, in, in some regards not just in terms of scoring but in, in performance generally like Brian Concanon held scoreless against Tip taken off on 54 minutes so with a little bit of help those these Conor Whelan performances could really really be, be emphasised I guess yeah, I think we're going to need probably a seven or eight out of ten performance from most of the forward line uh, this weekend in terms of contribution, work rate wise, but also scoring wise, and you know a bigger spread of scores. I suppose back from the half back line up to midfield would be a great help around that. Um, Connor has definitely brought his game to a new level this season in terms of consistency game to game, and you know he needs to bring a really big one again on Saturday evening. But you know I would be happy with overall in terms of the work rate of the forward line and how they're playing for each other and laying the ball off. And you know sometimes Connor's on the end of those scores, sometimes Tom Monnan, sometimes Brian Concannon, sometimes Evan Island. And uh, you'd be hoping a couple of other names pop up in terms of you know those nine out of ten performances this weekend because you're probably going to need that to you know overcome a, a Limerick challenge that's just unbelievable at the moment. Uh, Tony, I know you're working as a as a sports psychologist. We've spoken to you before about that on the show as well. But uh, am I right in saying you were, you were a sports psychologist within the the Limerick squad back in in 2019? Yeah, that'd be true, Shane. A very enjoyable season. And unfortunately, we were pipped in the semi-final by Kilkenny, so I didn't get a chance to experience an All-Ireland with them. The, but the mentality of, of the Limerick team, and you'll have seen it up close and personal, um, it's something else, isn't it? Like They, they just seem, clearly they're physically uh, in their prime and in a very good place, but, but mentally as well, they seem able to deal with, with, with setbacks. And let's be honest, they haven't had a few. But even being that front runner, it's not an easy position to be in constantly. We saw it with the Dublin six in a row team. They, they show mentality on another scale as well. But, but Limerick have certainly been one of those teams that have, have shown that as well. Yeah, like you just have to have huge admiration. It's grand seeing the lads playing on a Sunday and they're bringing that level of hunger and skill that they have. But to do the things that you have to do day in, day out to be at the top of your game, like everyone is analysing to the death in terms of how they play. But for players themselves to stay self-motivated in terms of 
lifestyle in terms of gym programs, in terms of mobility, in terms of their skill sessions uh, and, and their whole mindset and approach towards, you know, every training session, every league campaign, every championship match. They've just shown a ferocious ambition and a ferocious hunger and a ferocious dedication. And, uh, you know, till the team kind of matches that, you're not going to be in the same ballpark as them. And, you know, no one has matched that the last five or six years, really. And, uh, you know, you'd have to admire them in terms of their dedication to it and, and how much they put into it. Because, uh, you know, to be in that top 5% for as long as they have, it takes unbelievable dedication, unbelievable mindset. And, uh, and in fairness to them, they've shown that consistently. Barry, there's so much made about the about distribution, goalkeeper distribution. Uh, certainly, get like football this year, especially, uh, and you know, kick out retention being been such a massive part of it. Um, from Limerick, Limerick, Limerick's perspective, and you'll have seen this again up close and personal. But how important is that distribution and winning that um, that battle to to retain the ball? Nicky Quaid is obviously someone who's fairly adept at it, but I'm sure it's something that is widely widely spoken about in training these days. Yeah, I suppose you've got a guy there, Shane, that's going to have the ball in his hand maybe 40, 50 times in a game. And the days of just uh, hitting it long, I suppose, <laughs> and hoping for the best, they're, they're gone, you know. So um, at the weekend, it's going to be interesting to see how, I suppose, Galway responded. Do they push up? Do they sit back? Allow the first phase uh, ball out and then allow the second phase after that where the runner comes back through the middle for it. Because um, you can you can see where teams have got joy against Limerick this year, they've kind of allowed first phase where the ball goes out to Barry Nash and have shut out the second phase ball and have forced it to go long, and I suppose they put Limerick under pressure that way. So um, you can see the last day against Clare in the Munster final that Limerick went long um, a lot. It was probably the first time in a while I've seen where they've they've hit a long puck out past the other sixty-five consistently um, without breaking it up to go on short. So. It'll just be interesting to see what way that um, the Galway will open and respond to that. Um, but it's going back to your original question. Yeah, look, it's it's something that's worked on um, religiously because, as I said, it's it's a massive platform and it has been a massive platform for Limerick over the years. You know, and in fairness to Nicky, he's nearly the the Stephen Cluxon of the hurling game. He's revolutionised the the restart. So. I was asking uh, Tommy Welsh in studio yesterday about the, the, the break that Limerick have, ha- have had versus Galway and whether it's helped them or not um, because I guess sometimes you can have too long a break sometimes you obviously need the time to, to refresh the legs as well but uh, Tommy referenced the fact that you know Limerick would have been playing these A versus B quote unquote uh, matches in training which when you have the, the squad depth and strength and depth that Limerick have I'd imagine are fairly competitive you'll have, you'll have had some, ex- some experience of those games in, in training Barry I, I guess People always look at the break that the team have had, but those games are, are fairly vicious, I'd say, behind the scenes. Yeah, I suppose you've, you've 37 uh, competitive lads there, Shane, that are going toe-to-toe um, two, three weeks, even the week before a game. And obviously everyone wants to put their hand up and make an impression and and try and give what they can to the to the group. Um, and if it wasn't uh, more, than, more than once it happened where the B team actually beat the A team on occasion. So, you know, that just shows you how competitive things were. Um, but look, that four-week break, I think Limerick have navigated very well over the last few years. In 2019, there was a lot of lessons in that, that maybe we did a little bit too much on that break um, and came in a little bit flat against Kilkenny. Whereas in the last couple of years, they've they've navigated really well. They know the, the routine of it now, uh, what has worked in the past. You know, It's given a chance for a couple of lads to just refresh after probably the traditional Munster Championship again, you know, where every game in the Munster Championship was nearly an All-Ireland final for every team because... The scalp everyone wants at the moment is is the Limerick scalp, you know. So every team they they, they really raised uh, raised their game for for their Limerick game, um, and it was extremely nutritional and you know very taxing on the body. So 
John will be glad of the break there, two lads uh, give him a week off at the start and then to knock alone to three weeks of, of decent training. So, uh, Tony, Aaron Gillan is no doubt one of the players that um, Henry Shefflin would have pinpointed for a little bit of special treatment and looking after uh, on Saturday evening in Croke Park. How would you expect Galway to deal with him? Because he's been such a problem for every team the Limerick have come up against. You know, 1-4 inside the last day, I think it was. Cal Mannion, of course, playing the sweeper role. You maybe have Dahi Burke mentioned. I think Tommy mentioned him as yesterday. Someone who could pick up Gillan. How do you look after him? Yeah, there's probably two or three modes you have to kind of think on. It's probably, first of all, can you get pressure on the delivery outside and not allow Limerick to get their heads up in terms of the half-back line midfield area? You know, obviously, Cahill played as a kind of sweeper role the last day as well. So I would say he'd be probably leaning towards his position more towards Galan, even though Galan plays central a lot and then probably moves out to different corners. So it can be quite difficult to manage that. And obviously, then the, the man marking role inside who's going to pick him up on that matchup. And, you know, probably looking at Garrod, I suppose, to start with it and see how it goes from there. But, you know, it'll need to be a kind of a, a team approach in terms of closing down the space in defence and, and making sure those deliveries aren't as pinpoint as usual. And, uh, you know, hopefully from there, then you can kind of defend it a bit better because with some deliveries you got in the Munster final in, you know, 30, 40 yards of space hopping in front of him, you know, he can go left or right, he can take you on, he can win it overhead. Uh, he's a real handful and his movement is just top class. So, you know, Galway are probably going to need uh, those different modes to try and shut it down and shut down that space around him. Before we let you go, lads, we have to get the predictions. Is it hard overhead? Is it head over hard? We'll see now in a second. But uh, last year's semi-final, I'm just looking at the final score last year, Limerick 27 points, Galway 121. So... Uh, Four points in it, or three points in it rather, uh, in last year's semi-final. Tony, how do you see Saturday going? Yeah, I think with the Tipperary match two weeks ago and uh, a lot of Galway has shown really good form, I think that match sharpness just might be enough to you know, bring them forth and uh, put them into a winning position by maybe a score or two going down the stretch. So, you know, we'll be quite hopeful and optimistic that it could be the time that they turn over Limerick in the semi-final. Very good. And Barry, how do you see it, how do you see it playing out? Uh, I think the beauty of the group being together for so long, Shane, is they've been in this situation before where they know how to, to win big games. And I do think it'll be a lot closer than it was last year. Um, I do think it'll probably be a one-score game as well. And I'm saying Limerick. I'm so excited for it because I think last night the show, James O'Connor and the lads were echoing those sentiments, saying that they'd be expecting a score, a score in it at the end. Just before, uh, in, in a word, lads, Kilkenny Clare, uh, Tony, who are you going for on that one? Yeah, I'd be surprised at the level of favouritism seems to be around Clare. Like, Kilkenny are just unbelievable at semi-final stage and have a great record. Like, So I think Clare will have to be a lot sharper than they were against Dublin and will have to come with you know, that energy and work rate that they had in the Munster campaign. If they don't, like, Kilkenny will blow you away. So um, at the moment, I think Kilkenny are probably favourites and, and Clare really have to kind of step up and show that they've improved from last year. Barry, in a word, Kilkenny or Clare? Yeah, it's clear for me, Shane. We've a uh, club men involved with them, so I'll, I'll give them the, the vote on this one. Give them the nod. Good stuff. Lads, thanks many for hopping on this morning. Great stuff. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Nice one, lads. Barry Hennessy and Tony O'Gregan there previewing Goa Limerick on Saturday 
at Croke Park. Really looking forward to that and that uh, that idea that it's going to be a one-score game certainly seems to be the the idea most people are coming up with. Should mention as well at 8.55am on Thursday morning's OTBAM, the sports breakfast show from Off the Ball. The football pod are hitting the road again. And yesterday, tickets were released for their road show on All-Ireland Football Final Week. It's going to be in Croke Park on Thursday, the 27th of July, with thanks to AIB. Tommy Rooney, Paddy Andrews, James O'Donoghue, all bringing the football pod live to the Hogan Suite in Croke Park for a live show where they'll also be joined by some very special guests. This is your warning. Tickets are limited, and they very nearly sold out last night. You can get the remaining few now over at offtheball.com forward slash events. It's the only place to be before this year's All-Ireland Football Final. Back in a sec, Jess Kelly, back from Wimbledon. We've got big news, boys. The pod, the football pod, have another roadshow coming. (laughs) Thursday, the 27th of July. All-Ireland final week, week, is it? Yes. All-Ireland final week, three days before the All-Ireland final. Go on. The football pod are bringing a roadshow, a live roadshow, an off-air exclusive event. Back to Clare. With special guests (laughs) to Crow Park. Oh, wow, on the pitch, on the pitch. We're in it's the like Hogan Taylor Stand. Swift. We're in the Hogan Stand Suite, <laughs> which has an unbelievable view of the pitch. So we've got a good view of the pitch. It's so going to be absolutely unreal. Croker. The football pod are going to Croker at all the final week. Oh, yeah. my God. It's magic. Alan Mulhig is out in the office there showing me his uh, little gifts that you've brought back from Wimbledon. Uh, Catherine, we just did want, to men- want to mention before we get into that slot, uh, people are commenting on the tickets for tonight? Yeah, so at the Zambia game there was like 1,500-ish ticket or seats that weren't filled in the stadium and I've asked the FAI about it a couple of times and they're not fully sure what's happening but I was told that there are multiple groups of people that are allocated tickets and not turning up so just mm. to say to if anyone does have tickets for tonight and if you can't use them, that's fine. To get on someone, there's plenty of people still looking for tickets there, but it'd be really nice to see Tallis Stadium properly sold out because the game itself has been sold out for weeks now. Yeah. So if you have a ticket, turn up. If not, get on Twitter. There are loads and loads of people looking for tickets. Yeah, absolutely. Cut yourself on. If you bought a ticket, go to the match or give it to someone. Jesus. 8.57 a.m. News Talks tech correspondent Jess Kelly, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Keep it well. You're wearing green for Wimbledon as well. This is like the theme yeah. that we should have been told about this morning, I guess. Yeah. Colin Buhig is extraordinarily jealous I called him a traitor yesterday for uh, appearing on the PM show he's just jealous today yeah I felt I don't I don't do emotions very well but I felt bad (laughs) for once the day that I said to Colin that I was going to Wimbledon I could see his little heart break look at the the actual head (laughs) the amount of times he told me to F off over the last two weeks since I found out I was going is a bit sensational so I brought him back some treats just because I felt so bad no that's only right he's a mug I got a earring Magazine, oh wow. The official programme. Yeah, I'd say the merch isn't cheap over there either. Well, look, you know, when you're, you're on, on the big books, you know. I wasn't on a junket, I was it doing wasn't journalism. A junket, sorry, of course. <laughs> well, you can journalism on junkets as well. I the guess. merch shop in Wimbledon is kind of hilarious, the stuff you can buy there. Like, so, you know, they have the official towels, you can get that sort oh, of yeah. stuff, but you can actually buy, like, full tennis outfits. People and were doing that. Yeah, like, buying them and, like, changing in them in the shop and then uh, coming out wearing their full tennis gear like it's I'd so probably bizarre. do that that's <laughs> I could see you doing that do, uh, do many stags is a stag and hen location or is it too is it too like posh it's not as notionsy as I thought it was going to be because I'd never been before and right. I was so excited to go uh, the whole thing is the operation is just run so well I think it's very difficult to get 
the access to the tickets. There were thousands of people yesterday morning uh, queuing in Wimbledon Park hoping to get a return ticket. So actually what you guys were just talking about there by Tallis Stadium. So say if I went yesterday morning to Wimbledon and I stayed for like an hour, yeah. I could then scan my ticket on the way out and they would then resell my ticket so somebody else could get access. Right. That's the good thing about this. They don't want empty seats. They don't want empty seats, but also it's about giving as many people mm. an opportunity to go as possible. I was actually talking to someone about this about Crow Park at the weekend so they had the double headers. Um, there was a lot of people that went to the first games who maybe didn't have any interest in the second games but also or vice versa like it would have been so good if you had someone exactly like that standing outside rescanning your ticket and then it went on sale and someone could just pick it up that's where the tech coming into this to sports as a whole is a really good thing Mm. because it would be very difficult to do that manually you know to take a ticket back write down one to and yeah. then try and resell them. The fact that it's all done on this tech platform makes it pretty seamless. Like tech has been ingrained into pretty much every element of Wimbledon now. Mm. You know, if you're watching on the BBC and you see the stats on the screen yeah. and all the rest. So quick. It's I know so it's quick. supposed to be quick, but like. But it's, it's remarkable. So when I was given access yesterday morning at half 11 to the tech hub of Wimbledon. So I went downstairs beneath the, the court level. So we were like underground. There's all these secret little tunnels where the players can walk by and the journalists can walk by so they don't have to like mingle with the public. Uh, and Very important like that. Oh, well, look, it suited me down to the ground. Uh, but you go in and there are three rooms dedicated to using artificial intelligence to analyse pretty much every single element of the game. Like my brain nearly exploded. So if you Jesus. download the official Wimbledon app or if you go to the Wimbledon website, there are different elements that you can interact with. The thing that's different this year is they're using AI commentary. So they're using generative AI to produce commentary. This and is fascinating. It's, it's bonkers, Shane. Like, it is utterly bonkers <laughs> to provide insights to the game. So in one of the rooms I was in, I was watching this screen uh, that was analysing one of the, the, the matches and it was tracking in little green boxes every single move that a player made. Mm. And it could identify, it was coming up on the screen if it was a forehand or if it was a backhand. We what have the, the player likelihood to win. So this is from IBM. This is IBM. So IBM are the tech partner. They've been working with Wimbledon for 30 years. But obviously as technology has developed, they started using different things and they've really embraced AI. So the, the two key ways are the analysis. They're taking things like you know a player's previous performance as well as you know their age their weight their data like all Mm -hmm. the different elements about them to try and provide insights and predict who's likely to progress well in the competition so it can look at who's playing who and how likely you know each player is to to win in that and then map it the whole way through the competition but it's not just based on the obvious stats or you know things like their previous three or four matches. It's also taking what's called unstructured data, mm. so they can scan all across social media, all across news articles, see what's been written about them, see what the sentiment is towards them, and all of this information is meshed together, for want of a better phrase, to create these um, sort of predictions. But I want to go back to the AI commentary thing because some people don't like the idea of okay. AI doing our jobs uh, but the the way it works is it analyzes games but it's also giving access to commentary uh, for people to have commentary on games that wouldn't be on some of the show courts mm. so if you're at a court that's not um, you know getting the full BBC treatment you may not get the insights yeah. now the AI is able to do it it's taken a ton of uh, language based learning and then it's also just generated voices so you can choose to have a man or a woman uh, being the AI commentator it's trained in how to pronounce the names it's also trained which is to the toughest part of a tennis commentary I'd imagine mm. yeah <laughs> I, I would say so and also it's been given like a proper 
uh, like posh British accent as well to be keeping you, yeah. with the tone of, of Wimbledon. But it is incredible when you see what it can, what it can do. The only thing that's missing from it is, you know, if you are someone who watches Wimbledon every year, you know the like little bit of flair or colour that you get from a John McEnroe or someone like that who's in the commentary box? Yeah. You don't have that because it's purely factual. There's no crack. It'd be kind of funny if like it got to a stage where it observed so many matches that it could start recounting other things that it commented on. That's what it can do. Yeah. So you know, like I often see like, you know, if if Nathan's at a match or whatever, he'll post a picture of his of his little notebook with Mm. his highlighter and his seven different colour pens and all the rest of his little OCD system, which makes me really happy. Uh, AI doesn't need to do that. It doesn't need the notebook because it's learning the entire time. So not only can it take in all of the data from everything that's ever happened in a player's life, never mind just their career, it can then also say, well, half an hour ago, this happened. So it's learning the entire time and it's taking a lot of the pressure off, um, you know, the individuals trying to collate all this data. But I know that some people are slightly allergic to the idea of too much technology coming into sport. Yeah. Like obviously Hawkeye's been there for quite a while and some of the insights produced by IBM for this use the Hawkeye. But it's gone, you know, 17 layers above that now in terms of sophistication. Is it quick as in, is it literally as you're watching, is the commentary as quick as it would be with you? No. So at the moment, what's happening now is that this, the AI commentary is for the highlights of Uh, of the game. So if you say, if you sit down at seven o'clock tonight and you want to watch back the action, um, it does take a bit of time to generate. Also, what's really cool is within the app, if there are certain players that you're really interested in, you can select them as your favourites and it'll compile your own little highlights reel. <laughs> so it's like your own version of, you know, and this is going to come for every sport. So if you can curate your own version of Match of the Day or whatever it is where you're getting insights into oh, yeah. the matches and to the players and the athletes that you're most interested in, like it's all happening. Yeah. So for for people who watch Wimbledon, you'll, people will know that obviously centre court and court number one and two are the, the main ones, and then you've got the well, essentially there's six show courts. Yeah. And outside of that, you'd be doing well to recognise some of the names on the six show courts. But for some people who want to see that some of those matches are players, this technology will come in useful. Yeah. And the other thing with the AI and they have draw analysis and then they also have power rankings. Their own. I think they ripped you guys off a little Tommy bit. Rooney. Yeah. <laughs> watch out, Tommy. Uh, but what they do is they're saying that the AI can help identify up and coming talent right. so because it's looking at the trends it's looking at people's form and all the rest so if you are a proper tennis nerd uh, you know if you're Colin Bowie basically yeah. then you are going to really get the benefit of having all this data mm. um, but yeah I just found it utterly fascinating I feel like after this slot Colin's just not going to come into work next week and we're just going to oh, get yeah. a picture of him in Wimbledon queuing outside the gates he being like I'm ready go. guys he should give it a go did you have strawberries and cream no the queue was bananas and I'm too impatient I did have a PIMS though for the first time ever yeah, what, what is PIMS do you not have access since your media to the media I restaurant I was there as so I, w- I was given a grounds pass oh, okay yeah, uh, so there's yeah. like a special restaurant for all the media that works there. I saw that downstairs. Yeah. yeah, and like it's class. You get like free strawberries and cream. I did not get free it's strawberries pretty, and cream. Cool. I paid twelve quid for a thing of Pims, which was delicious and the most refreshing. What is Pims again? I actually don't know. I know that there's a bit of booze, a lot of fruit, and just deliciousness in a right. cup. Isn't yeah. it like it's like lemonade and yeah, liqueur and or something? It looks nice. It looks nice. It was great for the gram. Like yeah, that's, that's all that matters. That's all that I was. It's t- like about. a slightly less sweet cider or something. It says here, Pims is an English brand of gin-based fruit cup, but, but may also be considered a liqueur on, or the basis of a sling or punch. Who knows? First produced in 1823. 
there you go well, I love that. that's the most uh, that we've learned from this entire segment. No, <laughs> so thumbs up or thumbs down for the technology? Uh, thumbs up, but I would love to know what people think about this type of technology in general coming into sport. It's already been there in terms of um, like the Masters. It's coming into different sports the entire time at different levels. But I think the thing for me is, because I'm a bit of a data junkie, I love having all this yeah. insight. But it's where the technology interrupts the flow of the delivery of the sport yeah. and the commentary and all the rest. I don't think it's that invasive in tennis. Like, I get frustrated watching rugby and all the rest when you're going to the TMO for like 25 minutes and it's just like, oh, come on, no one has time for this. <laughs> so I think it's about striking that balance between benefiting the fan, regardless of where they're watching. Also, the other thing is the athletes are now using, like the tennis players are now using some of these insights to learn about their own game as well. So awesome. the players can log in, they have their own portal within the app. And they can see what AI, how AI assess their performance in a particular match and then learn from that. Their own stats person, basically. Essentially, yeah. So I think it's fascinating, but as I said, I'd love to know what the hardcore fans think. Absolutely. Let us know in the comments. Jess, great stuff. Thank Thanks you. for having in as always. Jess Kelly there, News Talks Technology Correspondent at 9.08am on uh, Thursday morning's OTB AM, the sports breakfast show from Off the Ball. Here are some highlights on the OTB Podcast Network coming up across today. Andy Mitten was on the show last night talking uh, United's new signings, Mason Mount, the De Gea situation as well. Paul Murphy and James O'Connor previewing this weekend's uh, hurling semi-finals and the F1 pod with myself yesterday. Uh, great episode yesterday, so you get that in all the podcast places. After the break, Paul Howard's version an episode of You Had To Be There. It's so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Yeah, it's the latest episode of You Had To Be There. Delighted to be joined in studio with myself and Kathleen with the uh, author, Paul Howard, course creator of Russell Carroll Kelly as well. Paul, how are things? Brilliant. Really good. Yeah, great to be here. This is uh, it's, <laughs> It's stressed out a lot of our guests trying to pick five sporting events that they've seen Paul in was 100% the most organised man I asked him to do this weeks ago and literally straight away sent me the five picks with every single detail about yeah. them I was so impressed normally you're hounding guests looking for these but well you I was straight. waiting for the call to be honest <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those slaps that people enjoy you're, you're looking back at events that you've you've actually enjoyed this was my Desert Island Discs like yes. you know for years like I listened to Des- I have my Desert Island Discs there ready and I had my five you had to be there as ready as well <laughs> yeah so there's no were there, were there ones that haven't we'll, we'll not spoil the, the five just yet but were there ones just outside the, the five that you well Katie Taylor I know everybody picks Katie Taylor yeah. and 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 I picked Katie Taylor and um, I, I it's the last time it's the last time I cried right in London watching sport I was in a I was in a bar in Belfast. I was in the Rock Bar on the Falls Road Brilliant. in Belfast, and I was I was at the Pubble Festival, and I was asked to read uh, a, some Ross O'Carroll Kelly stories yeah. at, the, at the festival. And Katie Taylor's fight was at some point in the middle of my reading, <laughs> and I was told beforehand as soon as the fight starts, we're going to interrupt you. I'll put up my hand. Danny Morrison, who was who arranged the festival, he put up his hand to stop me from reading, and uh, I, I had to go and sit down. They pulled the screen green down and they we all watched the fight and as soon as the fight was over then na- they put the national anthem on we everybody sang our Ron Naveen and then they said they pulled the screen back up and went away you go and I did, did the second <laughs> the but the emotion of that um I, I it's a long time since because I, I, I wasn't a sports reporter anymore I could mm-hmm. actually be yes I could, I could kind of get invested in it just personally. enjoy it. her story you know and where she'd come from and how she'd um you know, they, they'd created an Olympic sport because because of this unstoppable force, this yeah. this uh, women's boxer. You know, and um, I was at I, I saw a Deirdre Gogarty fight years earlier, mm. and P, I think it was at the National Stadium. Uh, 
people got up and walked out because they could they couldn't sit and watch women boxing. Women boxing. So so to see where Katie Taylor had taken it, it was um, it was very emotional for me. Yeah, we had Deirdre Gogarty in studio here she not too long ago. That, that, yeah. that yeah. week of, of Katie's fight, and she was she spoke very eloquently about it and how far women's boxing has come in particular. Um, but that that's that's an interesting point. Even when you work in sports media, you see something like Katie Taylor's fight and. You probably after the fight are analysing. Oh, how can we cover this? You, so you can enjoy the fight for what it is yeah. at the time, but you're also in the background thinking, how do we cover this? How do we? We should get her, get her on, get her coach, yeah. whatever. And when you step away from it, as I did in 2005, you can actually enjoy enjoy matches as a fan, yeah. enjoy fights as a fan. What a concept! Yeah, and be, to- <laughs> and be, and be totally partisan for someone yeah. or against someone. And yeah. it's um, that was that was one of the most exciting things for me about about. I mean, I hated giving up sports journalism because it was a job I loved. But there was especially the first few years afterwards. I went. I can actually go to an Ireland football match. Yes, and and boo, you know, <laughs> if I want. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, no Liverpool football club appearances in this. Uh, on these five, which I was surprised at, very surprised at. So everyone, anyone follows Paul on Twitter will know that Liverpool Football Club yeah. appears often enough. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, there was. The, I mean, lots, like lots of things involving Liverpool have moved me. Like the first, I started following Liverpool really because they won the nineteen seventy seven European Cup final, and I was allowed to stay up late. <laughs> uh, so I kind of thought. You know, I'd be a Liverpool fan because I can stay up late. And I, the following year, they beat Bruges in the final, yeah. and right the way up to the final, I was allowed to stay up late for every single match. So that's why I started following Liverpool. So those th- matches mean a lot to me, um, and obviously the Champions League finals since then. Uh, but it just so happened that I had five uh, events that moved me uh, more, even more so. <laughs> well, yeah, five strong picks. We'll get into them now. Um, so we'll start in chronological order, I guess. Nineteen eighty-nine, the All Ireland Senior Hurling Final at Croke Park. This is Tipperary against Antrim. Tip four twenty-four. Antrim three goals and nine points. Uh, and Nicky English a performance because Antrim scored three nine, but Nicky English himself scored the exact same as them two twelve. Uh, which kind of sums up his performance that day, man of the match, undoubtedly. Yeah, I, I had absolutely no interest or knowledge in hurling, none whatsoever. Um, growing up, uh, it, 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 it wasn't on my horizon at all. I was a football fan and that was it. But I went to Irish college and um, I made a load of friends from Tipperary and they were always talking about hurling. And I remember we were in Murrayock in Kerry, County Kerry, and we climbed up a mountain uh, well, it's probably a hill in Kerry terms, but it felt like a mountain because <laughs> yeah. it took us about an hour to get to the summit. And, and and it was so we could get reception to listen to, it might have been a Munster hurling final or an All-Ireland semi-final. And I remember sitting with the lads and I have a photograph of me with the lads sitting on the top of this hill listening <laughs> to this match on the radio, which just seems like such an eternity. Archaic, now. yeah, yeah. So one of, one of the lads, um, a guy called Tony McKenna, who is from Borussia Kane in North Tip, um, he had a ticket for the All-Ireland Final, which was wasted on me. Absolutely wasted. The 1989 All-Ireland Final. He said, do you want to come? I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to come. <laughs> and I was on the hill. We were on the hill. It was, he was with a bunch of his friends as well. And there was a crush on the hill. Right. And this was a few months after Hillsborough. Yeah. So there was real worry. I mean, I was worried going to sports matches after Hillsborough. Yeah. And there was a bit of a crush on the hill. So we said, let's go down the canal end. And we moved down to the canal end and we're standing there and there's a crush there. And I don't know whether they opened the gates or whether we climbed the fence. I think we may have climbed over, but they, we, the stewards didn't stop us. We all got on the pitch and I was behind the goal on the pitch. I and mean, that seems inconceivable in this day and age <laughs> that they would allow fans to sit behind the goal. Um, but I'm sitting there on the pitch with the lads 
for the match itself for the match or for, the, for most of the second half actually and if you if you watch if you can find it on the clip on YouTube the incident I'm talking about now uh, the, you can see us all the banks <laughs> of fans behind the goal on the pitch school sports day locking out the, the, the advertising hoardings and Anyway, this this particular... I was experimenting at the time with not wearing glasses. I was going through a sort of vain period in my life. Thought it was cooler. Yeah, I yeah. thought it was cooler not to have glasses. But the problem was I couldn't see. Like, I couldn't see anything, right? Especially something like hurling as well. Hurling. <laughs> for the little schlitter. Yeah. Anyway, Aidan Ryan, and I know it was Aidan Ryan because I, I watched it back on YouTube, hit this uh, diagonal pass across the field, fi- probably 50, 50 metres. Mm. It was unbelievable. But all I saw behind the goal was <laughs> this blur in the distance and then this schlitter dropping. And Nicky English caught it. And he caught, it was cross body, caught it like, you know, backhand. Yeah. Uh, I, thought, I thought he caught it on the full, but I've watched it since and it, and it, and it bounced. Right. Half and he caught it and bang into the back of the net. And it was... It was just that perfect, like the perfect golf swing or the perfect knockout punch. It's like, thwack. Yeah. You could hear it mm. into the back of the net. The net, it's just as a dream, you know, the, it's sort of a dream goal. You want to see the, the net rustling and everything. And we ran onto the pitch. And I don't remember, I, I mean, I was, a, I was from Dublin. I had no interest in hurling, but it was just like... You get kind of wrapped up in it. Yeah. I got, got, when I watch riot scenes now on television, <laughs> I I think of that moment like it's just, all these lads with these sort of yellow and blue flat caps they were in fashion at the time <laughs> they ran on the pitch and I just sort of ran with them and it was the last it was Nick English's second goal I think and it was this, it was the last meaningful moment of the match yeah. and it sort of crowned this performance I mean Antrim weren't in the match at all it was just it was a coronation rather than a mm. rather than a than a than a sporting competition um but Nicky English, I mean, it was it was extraordinary what he did, you know, just to watch it fall, to catch it back, yeah. you know. I mean, you must, I mean, Nicky English did that loads of times, but I mean, you, you know, most hurlers must dream of scoring a goal like that. Doesn't mean it's an easy skill, though, to do, because, like, you, you, you watched Nicky English, and uh, he was slightly before my time, but when you watch videos back, you're like, this guy was silky smooth and would look at home, possibly, in, in today's game as well. I know the yeah. game was completely different in, in many ways than it was. Yeah. But, like, as you say, that second goal, the game was over. Uh, it, like, it was the biggest winning margin in the final, apparently, since Antrim's last final appearance, which had been 1943. And even Tipperary, like, I think it was 18 years since they'd won Liam McCarthy, so they were ending a famine. Yeah. But to do it in that style, and Nicky English... And Nicky, like he, he was, he was just ultra cool as well. Like you know, when I watched the clips back, like the eighties, because I'll be looking at the eighteen eighties, it felt yeah. that remote from today. But he had that sort of Patrick Swayze from Ghost hair and everything. Like his hair didn't seem to move. Yeah. <laughs> it was sort of perfectly parted. Real green gel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was amazing. Uh, we'll move on to the next one. That, that was an extraordinary one. The tip fans, I think, will we'll, uh, be right on board with the nostalgia for that one. This one's right up my alley as well. Uh, a bit of snooker for all of you snooker fans out there this was Alex Higgins uh, against Dennis Taylor this is the Benson and Hedges Irish Masters even the fact that uh, you know it's sponsored by a, by a, a cigarette company mm. uh, is, is crazy to think of nowadays but back then I guess that was the done thing uh, the Irish Masters at Goffs in Kildare 1990 spoke to Ronnie O'Sullivan recently and I can't remember if it was off air or on air but he spoke so like candidly about Goffs and how much the players loved Goffs yeah, as a venue, just just and, and you said it on air uh, beforehand. How close the the fans were to the actual arena and the yeah. table. I mean, it, it, people who who were there, 
in 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 Kildare. It was the heyday of snooker, and um, the venue was perfect because it was the the old Bloodstock Arena. Yeah, and it was so it was, it was round. The arena was round, and they just sort of put up this sort of wooden uh, frame around the, the in the in the middle and left enough room for the players to yeah. <laughs> have a just bit of elbow right. room. Yeah, and and then you were there, and you could. If you sneezed, it was, it was no matter where you were in the arena, it was loud enough to make a player stop. Um, it, there was no mobile phones in those days, yeah. and I certainly didn't have one. Um, but every if you you were, you were terrified to shift in your chair in case it put the players <laughs> off, and you could literally reach out and touch them. So the the, the intimacy of the I I don't think I was ever at a sporting event that had that kind of intimacy that you felt that close How big would the crowd have been? Um not big maybe sort of 400 500 people so it mm-hmm. was it was sort of small enough that you know you you could make eye contact with other fans and kind of go you know <laughs> you, it it felt so it felt like a like you know when you go to a gig uh, when, when somebody does an unplugged gig for 400 people in Vicar Street, a yeah. big star, that's what it felt like. Yeah. It felt like you were seeing these 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 players who are used to big venues, uh, but you were seeing them in a in a small venue, and it was it was an extraordinary. The Irish Masters was an extraordinary tournament, yeah. and it was just very much of its time. I'd love to see it returning because I never got the chance to see snooker at Goffs, but it's definitely one that was on my to do list if it had if it had stayed around. Alex Higgins and Dennis Taylor, like you think, are oh, two Northern Irish. Snooker players, they must have got on very well. But for people who don't know the backstory, these two lads uh, didn't quite see eye to eye. We know Alex was a bit of a a maverick and a character. Yeah, I mean, they did at the start. I think when when Alex Higgins went to to England first to try to make it as a snooker player, Dennis Taylor set him up with a flat and you know rented him a television. Remember the days of renting televisions? Dennis Taylor rented a television for Alex Higgins for, right. to make this place a little more homely. <laughs> so they were close at one point, but they fell out over the years. Mm. Um, I think it was a personality thing. I think they they. I mean, Alex Higgins at that point was. Let's be honest. He he was unhinged at that point, you know, with the the the, especially with the drink uh, and the you know whatever else. Uh, We were seeing the end of Alex Higgins really, and it was really really sad in those years to witness it. But it was compelling as well because you never knew what he was going to do. He had this hyperactive energy about him. He was he was one of the few people. I ever saw who could who could walk into a room and immediately change the energy of the room just by walking in and I and I don't it wasn't usually Dark for the energy. best yeah, yeah it was people went quiet when he walked into a room yeah. um, I remember years later Liam Gallagher walking into a room and I kind of felt the same energy from Liam Gallagher and that's well, unpredictability stage. isn't it you don't it's know the what unpredictability do. it was yeah the, the hyperactivity the one word from this man and it could all kick off that's what I that's what you felt about Higgins and before in in March 1990 uh, Dennis Taylor and Alex Higgins were had played together on the uh, Northern Ireland World Cup team mm. there was a World Cup tournament in March and there was a row about at the time they said it was about prize money but I think it was more than that I think you know Taylor wanted to hug the table or sorry Higgins wanted to hug the table and Taylor was saying well this is my match and Higgins said no I'm going to I'm going to go and make up for my loss in the last match and anyway they lost and there was a huge row and during the course of the row uh, the troubles had never ever come up between them mm-hmm. Bo- both Taylor and Higgins uh, le- had left Northern Ireland before 
the start of what we know as the modern troubles. Yeah. So, so it had never really been an issue between them. And Higgins said, uh, the next time you go back to Northern Ireland, I'm going to have you shot. And Higgins was from, was from Sandy Row and uh, Dennis Taylor was from Coal Island. Yeah. And I had never really thought about their religious affiliations before. I actually, you know, my, my own prejudices, I thought it was the other way around. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> and, and you're all right. Like, just a um, name like Taylor, we were even saying yeah. this morning, yeah. you'd think was of a Protestant Completely. background, but not. Yeah, and then, and then you know, and, and Higgins, I, I just presumed he was... Anyway, yeah. but, it, so, but so it never came up as an issue until this. And it all blew up. It was all over the papers. And the following week, they uh, ended up in the quarterfinal together at the Irish, Benson Hedges Irish Masters in Goffs. And I went with a friend of mine. And again, it's the, it's the closeness. It's the intimacy, the tension. Um, I, I don't remember a single thing about the match. <laughs> I don't remember a shot. I don't remember a break. I had to check the score. I had to I had to go online to find out that Dennis Taylor won five two. Five two, yeah. Um, so you were saying to me that you had a, like a headache for about two days afterwards just yeah. because you were concentrating yeah. so much on the moment. I had this migraine, <laughs> and like I said to you, you know, you, you're you're sitting there and you're trying you're trying not to move anyway. Like uh, if you're at a football match or a rugby match, you're up and down and all the rest. But snooker, you're 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 frozen in the seat like mm. that and you're tensing the whole time. But this was t- a tension I'd never ever experienced. Uh, I was there as a fan um, and I, I got this migraine right the way across my shoulders and neck. I never, ever get migraines, but it was from just that, just yeah. the tension. And the build up to the match as well, the backdrop to the match, I the suppose. Backdrop to the, the match. You could, you, could, you could smell it in the air. It was, you know, the, this, the, the atmosphere, it was so dark. Um, ama- it was ama- But it was amazing to be there. It was probably four or five hundred people there. Yeah. And um, How did they interact with each other? Well, in the moment. Well, that's the amazing thing because that's all any of us watched. Mm-hmm. And they because ju- none of us watched the snooker. We're just watching. It was like people watching. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at, you know, they, they, re- they didn't look at each other at all. They did. Alex Higgins especially just refused to make eye contact. <laughs> and Dennis Taylor, there was a bit of that sort of challenging stare mm-hmm. going on, you know, but Higgins just didn't didn't make eye contact at all. And um the other thing, the other great thing about Goffs was you'd sort of spill out into a corridor and you'd find yourself backstage with with players. Yeah. You know? it security was, was high, obviously. Not a, the security was non-existent, <laughs> yeah. you know, and um, it was um, it was a it was a brilliant event. But that match in particular, I'll, I'll never forget it. It's just the most stressed I've ever been, the yeah. most worked up I've ever been. And I there was a little bit of me was pulling for Higgins because, uh, you know, if you're a sport, sports fans generally love a comeback story. Yeah. And that would have been such a great comeback story. But what I didn't realise at the end was that I was witnessing kind of end stage Higgins. Demise. He yeah. was never the same after that. You know, he came, he got banned for threatening Dennis Taylor and assaulting a, a press, a tournament yeah. press we're, officer. We're, and he sure. never came back again. You know, it was, he was kind of a sad case after that. It was really awful to watch. Yeah. Big time. I think Ken Doherty told the story about working as an usher at Goffs when he was a kid, and uh, Alex Higgins came up to him before a match and said, "If I ask you for an orange juice, I mean vodka orange juice. And if I ask you for a vodka orange, that means double." 
So like I think he wrote that story in his book, but it's just brilliant. Yeah. Like Higgins probably throughout the match drinking these vodka orange yeah, juices. Yeah. Uh, it was a great pick, uh, definitely. That that's an event that only four hundred people can say they were at it, but no doubt there's probably four thousand or forty thousand out there who say yeah, they were like all the greats. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next pick, Paul, is another brilliant one. Steve Collins versus Chris Eubank. This yeah. is at Mill Street in Cork in nineteen ninety five for the WBO middleweight and super middleweight titles. Uh, a really famous event. You think of the Parky Queeve fight later in the year, but the Mill Street one was just Mill unique. Street was it. Mill Street was it because it just had everything going for it. Like it was Paddy's weekend. It was the 18th of March. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in the Green Glens Arena in Mill Street where the Eurovision had happened. Yeah. It was, it, I mean, the idea that, that this fight wouldn't be in London, that it would be in this remote part of Ireland. <laughs> like, you know, it, it, it was... The circumstances behind it were bizarre. Yes. You know, Steve Collins... Ha- He'd want to fight Eubank for years, and I think Eubank was kind of avoiding him because Steve was in that what they what they call in boxing the "who needs him" class. Mm. In that he's going to give you a really really good fight, mm. and there's nothing in it for you. You know, there's no money in it. Like he's not a big. He's Steve really wasn't a big draw, um, and there's a chance he could beat you. Yes. So I think Eubank had avoided him, but Eubank had fought Ray Close twice. Two really really controversial. Uh, fights because like a lot of Eubank fights in that period they were really close and he got the decision and at least Often one of 12 rounds as well yeah at least one of them I thought close beat him yeah. um, and so close was awarded a third fight on the just off the back of how controversial these t- previous two fight the decisions were and then Ray close there was a problem with a brain scan and Steve was offered the fight in January mm-hmm. very late two and months out literally two months out and I was, I was working with Steve on a book at the time, and I'd spent probably uh, the previous year. I'd probably spent three or four months with him in Romford in Essex. And Steve had this idea; he wanted to do a book like Eamon Dunphy's "Only a Game," mm. uh, where it was kind of a year in the life of a professional boxer. And the start of the book, he beat Chris Pyatt to win the world, the WBO middleweight title, and that was the start of the book. Uh, and then the book was going nowhere. It was a real, Pyatt was a real sort of so what kind of moment because it was a world title, but no one really rated Chris Pyatt in world terms. And then Steve was trying to defend the title and we went to Hong Kong in October of 94 and the fight got called off the day beforehand because the fighters' purses weren't paid. And then the fight, his fight was rescheduled against an American called Lonnie Beasley. It was rescheduled for Boston in November and Steve, or December, and Steve got sick and got a, a throat infection, so it was called off again. So this was the book. It was, the book was in ruins. And then in January, Steve rang me and said... I've been offered you bank. So suddenly, a twist you know, on the book. Yeah, yeah, and and so it suddenly. It, so I also was personally all the stuff that came excited. before kind of made it more of a story. As yeah. Well. yeah, yeah. And I was personally excited. I was yeah. like, like this is the book now, you know. <laughs> so the fight itself, Steve disappeared for about six weeks, and I think this is why you know there was all this intrigue around the fight. Steve disappeared to one of the Canary Islands with Tony Quinn um, of Tony Quinn. Yeah health food shops and um, uh, who was who was practicing hypnotism at the time and um, you know he had all these kind of relaxation tapes and everything and Steve disappeared off with him and there was no contact with anybody I mean I know Roddy I did Roddy Collins his brother Roddy's book as well and you know Roddy said I had no contact with him at all while he was away and uh, 
and he came back and he was like Steve was a basket case when he went away like he was mm. physically physically broken down he kept getting colds and you know his head wasn't in it and everything and, and Tony Quinn whatever he did remade him out there but they came back and there was this story during the rounds that Tony Quinn had hypnotized him so he wouldn't feel pain right <laughs> in the ring and this was really serious yeah. because, and Chris Ru- Eubank got really really spooked by it because um Pain is your body's way of saying the fight's over. Nice, yeah. And Eubank had had experience in the ring where he fought Michael Watson and Michael Watson had ended up with life-changing mm. injuries from this fight, from this knockout punch that Chris Eubank pulled from nowhere at the end of the fight, which he was losing. And then a few weeks before this Collins, U- uh, Collins Eubank fight, uh, Nigel Benn had fought Gerald McClellan and Gerald McClellan ended up, you know, his... You know, with, yeah. with, with life-changing injuries as well. So, so boxers and injuries in the ring was very much in the news when Steve arrived back and said, "I'm not going to feel any pain." Yeah. And I think it really, really spooked Chris Eubank. Um, the fight turned. I mean, Steve Steve Collins fought brilliantly, which I was expecting because I'd been following his career right from the start. He fought some of the toughest boxers boxers in America, like Mike McCallum, uh, Paul McPeak. Um, Kevin Thornton you know he'd done his apprenticeship and this was his moment um, but the, the, the Steve Steve put Eubank down in the 8th round with a body shot and Eubank got back up but he looked beaten he was he was gone and then the fight turned on this moment in the 10th round where Eubank came out at the very very start of the round walked across the ring and nailed Collins with a right I mean it was an unbelievable punch Mm. Um, which Eubank was always capable of. Mm. That's what made the fight so exciting, that Eubank could be battered and still pull out uh, a a, a fight-winning punch. He did it against Watson. He did it against Nigel Benn. Collins went down. He got up. I mean, he looked okay, but that's the moment to charge in and finish a fight, you know, when when a fight was hurt. And Eubank didn't. He stood back and he started dancing. And that was always a thing. People always said... Eubank had lot because of the firstly the Watson fight but then later on watching what happened with Gerald McClellan he'd kind of lost his atmos- his his, his a- uh, appetite mm. for that that kind of destruction that thing that requires you to rush in all fists blazing and finish a fight he just couldn't do it and Roddy and I have, we, we argue all the time about this Roddy reckons that Eubank knew he'd hit Steve with his toughest punch it was hardest punch and, and Steve still got up yeah and that's Maybe why he, he stood back. Yeah. I uh, personally, I, I I think I think he he just didn't have it in him anymore. But anyway, it was an amazing occasion, especially because I was writing the book and I thought, there we have a book. <laughs> Hallelujah! What I remember about it was, um, apart from being Paddy's weekend, the guardie were the were the security on the night. So if you look at pictures from the fight. Uh, it's just guards everywhere. Like when Steve is walking to the ring, he's surrounded by about 300 guards. <laughs> it's like he's going to court. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, but the other thing I remember is that most of Dublin, Dublin's gangland criminals were there as well. You know, right. so this kind of uneasy mix mm. of, of law and order and criminals uh, in the audience. It was, and it kind of, the, it was crackling the atmosphere down there. You know, the second fight at Porky Cueve in September, it, it, it wasn't a it wasn't a great fight. It was, mm. and it definitely didn't have that atmosphere. Remember, at this point, when Steve fought uh, Eubank in that first fight, Eubank had never been beaten before, 
and he was Barry Hearn's darling, even though Steve was married by, managed by Barry Hearn as well. But he was Sky Sports' darling as well. Like he was a mi- the first million pound a fight fighter in England, and, and and unbeaten. And a lot of the fights, it was it was kind of felt that you know he should have lost that one, yes. but he always got seemed to get the benefit of the doubt. Everything about that pick is amazing. You've got the guards, you've got the Paddy's Weekend, the hypnotism, I mean, just the venue in Mill Street as well. It's just one of those well, Walkman as well. Steve was, Steve was sitting in his corner before the fight with like like what, the Walkman headphones and I, I don't mean the Beats, you know, those big ones or even yeah. the little buds that they have now. He had like orange, do you remember the ones which are, which are little there, yeah. Sony Walkman, like they were sort of orange foam uh, headphones and the and the the hood over him, you know, it was it was amazing. Like you know, especially the drama around it really contributed to it. We've got we're bang out of time, but we've got two two picks, and maybe there's one of them you have, you have more grow for than the other. But two cork picks: Sonia Sullivan Olympic five thousand meter final in Sydney in two thousand, uh, and of course Roy Keane's performance against the Dutch in that World Cup qualifier in Lansdowne in in Dublin in two thousand and one. Are there either of these that that stands out more so than the other for you? Well, I think Sonia. See Sonia. Uh, that was my first Olympics, and when you when you want to become a sports journalist, it's usually because something has moved you in your childhood. And for me, it was the Olympics. I always wanted to go to the from the time I watched the nineteen eighty Olympics and the eighty four Olympics on television. I wanted to be a sports journalist. So Sydney two thousand was my first Olympics. I remember being at the opening ceremony, and you know one hundred and ten thousand people in this incredible stadium in Sydney. Uh, and John Williamson singing Waltzing Matilda and everybody singing along and I was in tears you know and it was amazing but that night in the stadium Sonia I mean I'd followed Sonia's career uh, you know which was she always looked so assured until 1996 and then she became a totally different athlete you never knew she was unbeatable up between 92 and 96 and then after the Olympics in Athens from that point on she you know obviously you know she was she was disappointed at the Olympics in Athens or in um, Atlanta mm. it was a disaster for her and then uh, 97 I would cover the world championships in Athens and it was exactly the same you kind of thought she's finished and then she came back and she won the world cross country championships the double in 2000 and but we still didn't know going to Sydney her form was up and down all that she summer was, yeah, we didn't yeah. know where she was and to, to she won silver I mean I I, sh- I think it should have been bronze. Um, oh, sorry, I think it should have been gold. Gabriella Zabo, who won the race, there's, there's always going to be a shadow over Zabo. And I, in my mind, there's always an asterisk against mm-hmm. Zabo's name because um, she retired uh, from athletics three years later after this uh, scandal in which uh, Activegan, this um, yes. drug that's very similar to EPO, was found in the boot of her car, which was being driven across the French border, mm. where she, she had a training camp in France. And border police stopped the car and found this Activegan. And um, a teammate of hers said it, said it's mine. It's not for Gabriella right. Zabado. But but there will always be a question mark over Zabo. So in my mind, in my mind, Sonia won won gold. But it was an extraordinary performance from her. Yeah. Quite incredible. Uh, we've no time literally for the last uh, pick with Roy Keane, but I guess the Overmars tackle setting the scene that day just led to... Uh, it's been in a few of our choices, to be fair. I think Roy Keane and Katie Taylor have been the two yeah. that have appeared most two often. For, which yeah, is, which is I think enough. if you were there at Lansdowne Road that day, 
it's uh, that's the moment. Even more, even more so than the two thousand two World Cup for me. Yes, that, that was the moment beating Holland because it wasn't our usual, you know, one one draw. Mm. You know, we didn't win one yeah. one like we usually did. We beat Holland. <laughs> we won one ten men. Yeah, exactly. Uh, great picks, Paul. One of my favourite episodes. I think to be fair, it's just uh, incredible. And the fact you had a snooker one in there as well, just <laughs> right up my own street. Uh, fantastic, really good stuff. That is Paul Howard's version of "You Had to Be There." Just so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently, genuinely, did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Great stuff. If you've missed any of uh, Paul's version and episode of You Had to Be There, there you'll get it on the youtube.com forward slash off the ball and of course wherever you get your podcasts as well. As well as that, don't miss all the action in Rugby Daily today in your OTB Podcast Network, bringing you everything you need to know about rugby. Get your favourite local restaurants delivered to your door with Deliveroo. Just open up the app, browse some great offers, take your pick, and they will take care of the rest. Deliveroo food, we get it. On tomorrow's show, Ashley O'Reilly will join me in the studio. We'll have all the reaction from Ireland versus France tonight at Tallis Stadium. We'll have our second hurling semi final preview, Claire's Brendan Bugler and Kilkenny's Kieran Joyce uh, Connacht out half legend Jack Carty will be on the show and plenty more besides right now though Tim Vickery from last night's show on Carlo Ancelotti becoming the Brazil manager from next year have a terrific Thursday OTB AM The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball